Hey comrades, uh, we are about to uh, to watch the debate that I did just over a week ago with uh, libertarian economist uh, Gene Epstein uh, at the Soho Forum, which, as the name suggests, is uh, is usually in Manhattan. Uh, but uh, during the uh, during the pandemic, I think at the you know whatever last couple months, they've relocated to uh, to Florida. Um, and uh, it's so in fact, this was in uh, the villages in Florida, which if you've ever seen, uh, there's a there's a documentary about it, uh, which uh, maybe we'll have to watch that with patrons sometime. Um, but it's a, it's a very, very strange place. Um, it's like uh, 80 uh, individual uh, villages. So there's this, this this like planned community. It's like this ginormous plan community that stretches over parts of three counties. Uh, and you have to be, uh, I think, over 55 to like have a house there. And each of the 80 villages are like gated communities. And it was like 70 or 80% for Trump in the last election. Uh, and um, the other thing to give you a flavor of what this is like is, uh, is that um, they had like, a ridiculous portion of the people who live in villages seem to primarily get around, not in cars, but in golf carts. Uh, so I, I definitely saw more golf carts uh, the, uh, this this week, weekend before last uh, when I was there for this debate than, uh, than I had in the previous 41 years of my life. Uh, so uh, it was, it was, it was, that was fairly surreal. Uh, and, uh, and of course, this was uh, Soho Forum is a, uh, is a libertarian uh, thing. Uh, they have... You know, their Gene Epstein is normally the uh, the moderator of it. Uh, to you know, this time, of course, there was a guest moderator because he's one of the debaters, which he does sometimes. He also debated uh, Richard Wolf at the Soho Forum a little over a year ago, and uh, Bhaskar Sankara a couple years ago. Um, so this, um, so in any case, it definitely was. You know, he definitely had home court advantage, but. Uh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was fun. And, 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 uh, and, and despite their, uh, lunatic economic views, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're friendly and, uh, and generous hosts. So, uh, so no, no complaints in that regard did, uh, did end up spending like four days in the car, uh, you know, for the round trip. Uh, so, you know, went down on the, drove down, uh, from Michigan on Thursday and Friday. I was there on Saturday and Sunday and then came back on uh, Monday and Tuesday. Uh, so, uh, it was a, uh, <laughs> that's a long way to drive to the worst place I ever heard of. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I hear about it, I think of the Jacobin article they put out last, uh, last time that was like sex, drugs, rock and roll, COVID and, uh, the villages. And they had like the the big the big cartoon pictures of like a bunch of old people like running around uh, partying during the pandemic. Yeah, I, I will say. I mean, to be fair, at this point, um, a lot of them, since you know they were eligible very early, uh, might have been um, you know might be vaccinated by now. I really hope so. But but I will say that like in the hotel I was staying at, people were generally wearing masks, but just walking around like the. I don't know if downtown is the right word, but like the business area, uh, it, you you would think that the COVID wasn't happening. There were there were like people at crowded uh, outdoor concerts and stuff like that, uh, maskless. So uh, so yeah, that that definitely <laughs> that definitely gives you uh, uh, gives you a flavor. I did not uh, 
uh, our, our graphic designer, Andy, was wondering if I jousted in a golf cart uh, post-COVID, maybe. I can't do that. <laughs> um, That's really how you have to decide the whole socialist versus libertarian thing, you know? <laughs> golf cart joust. Yeah. Uh, I, I will say I think a lot of the people who are actually at the debate, uh, I think there was a pretty big age range. So I think that uh, I'm not sure how many of them actually lived in the villages. I think a lot of people maybe drove in from Orlando, uh, you know, which is, which is pretty, you know, relatively nearby, um, you know, sort of in the suburbs uh, had um, uh, did have one of the few friendly faces uh, in the, uh, in there, you know, since it was, uh, you know, they, they did like a poll at the beginning and end, which, um, I don't know. I'm not entirely sure I see the point of that because I don't really believe that anybody changes their mind about this stuff as as a, as instantaneously as all that. Uh, but um, but judging by that and what I can tell about the audience, I think maybe like, you know, out of the 200 and change people, maybe like, I don't know, 15 were, you know, sympathetic. Uh, but uh, one of those guys uh, did uh, did come up to me later and, and say that I think he started out as a libertarian or something. I was a little unclear on that part, but he said that he'd uh, uh, that he he claimed that reading my stuff in Jacobin had uh, had started to uh, to move him to the left, and that he's uh, like the vice chair, I think he said, of Orlando DSA now. So definitely don't hate that. But um, but anyway. Uh, we are going to watch it, and we're going to talk about the end. This is not going to be like uh, one of those um, Sunday night debate breakdowns where we're stopping and starting. Because if um, you know if we were doing that, I think uh, we'd be here until midnight, and, and I really can't be tonight. Uh, and in any case, I know a lot of you lovely people. It's the first time you've seen it, so we are pretty much going to uh, watch it through and then do uh, post game analysis. For that, of course, our uh, our um, Loyal producer uh, Forrest uh, Forrest Miller uh, is uh, is going to be there for part of that, and uh, current affairs house economist, uh, economics uh, professor writer uh, Rob Larson uh, is uh, is is going to be here for that. So uh, I, I know the video description says um, featuring Ben and crew because we weren't sure at that point exactly who was who's who's going to be here, but I think Rob has been here often enough to count. So. Uh, I feel like part of the crew. And let me say, uh, I'm excited for this one. This is the first uh, episode I visited where uh, where uh, you're one of the contesting parties. So I'm excited to watch this uh, clip with, uh, with this episode with uh, experienced Gene Epstein and fresh-faced newcomer Ben Burgess. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think you probably see – I don't remember exactly what's on the shelf behind me, but you know, probably a few Ian Banks books. Uh, big fan. We should do something about him sometime. Uh, you know, interesting, uh, interesting guy, good politics. But uh, in any case, uh, with, uh, with no further ado, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's watch the video. Let's watch. The resolution is socialism is preferable to capitalism as an economic system that promotes freedom, equality, and prosperity. And with that, uh, could we please welcome to the stage Ben Burgess. Thank you. Uh, and many thanks to Gene and to the Soho Forum for inviting me. It's been an interesting weekend, among other things. Um, I've definitely seen more golf, uh, golf carts in the last two days that I had in the previous 41 years of my life. So, you know, that's definitely something. 
So approaching this, I'm keenly aware that the villages is not exactly Bernie Sanders country and that most people who follow the Soho Forum are libertarians. I also know that there are lots of people on all ends of the political spectrum, yours, mine, lots of others, who primarily approach debates as opportunities to cheer with the person they agree with has a nice turn of phrase and to crow about how the person they disagree with was destroyed uh, with that the chances that people who like me will think I've done that to Gene and the chances that people who like Gene who think will think I, that he's done that to me yeah, right around 100% and will remain right around 100% regardless of what either Gene or I say tonight. That said, I also know that there are many, many people who come to events like this because they're genuinely curious, open-minded people who, even if they abhor socialism, are genuinely curious about what the best case for socialist ideas look like. And they're not content to just argue with some cartoon caricature of what socialists think. And in what follows, I'm going to try to talk to those people. I don't want to just talk to the you know few people here who agree with me or give my YouTube producer Forrest something to clip later. I want to try to make my best case to you because even though I'm perfectly aware that it's unlikely that all 200 shin change of you are going to experience road to Damascus conversions and uh, fill out DSA membership applications tonight. Uh, I do think that it's possible that I can leave you with, uh, with something to think about and to make you think that there really is something on this side of the argument. So I'm going to try to take all three parts of the proposition seriously. Freedom, equality, and prosperity. But I'm guessing that I'm going to need to do the least work out of the three to convince you that a socialist society could be more equal than what we have right now. We live in a society where the average CEO makes hundreds of times as much as the average worker, and truly wealthy individuals make those quote-unquote average CEOs look like peasants. Jeff Bezos has told interviewers that the only way he can think of to spend all the money he's made from Amazon would be to go into space. Meanwhile, the men and women who drive his trucks and work in his warehouses often resort to peeing in bottles because they're afraid that if they walk to the bathroom and back, uh, they won't make the demanding quotas that Bezos enforces through constant electronic surveillance. He doesn't need to worry too much about his terrorized and subservient workforce unionizing because as we just saw in Bessemer, Alabama, he can effectively utilize economic blackmail. That's a nice job you've got there. $15, health insurance, shame if something happened to it. And that threat is effective in a society like the contemporary United States where people like Shane Patrick Boyle exist. Boyle is a diabetic who died uh, when not enough people donated to the GoFundMe he set up to pay for a month's worth of insulin. A society where Jeff Bezos and Shane Patrick Boyle both exist is extraordinarily unequal. And I'm sure that even many of the libertarians in this audience would have no trouble believing that a different economic system could be dramatically more egalitarian. Maybe Gene will dispute that last claim, but even if he does, I don't think that's where the real action is going to be this afternoon. 
The reason I don't think that is that I don't think anti-socialists are usually motivated to oppose socialism because they don't believe a socialist system could be more equal than capitalism. Instead, I think they oppose it because they don't think it would be as prosperous or as free. They think that if the capitalist system involves the unequal distribution of riches, socialism would be in a more equal distribution of crumbs. And they think that we can only get from capitalism to socialism by doing things that violate economic freedom. Those are the main ideas that I'm going to try to push back against this afternoon. First, let's sort out some definitions. Capitalism, at least in the original meaning of that term, is a society divided between a capitalist class that owns the means of production, distribution, exchange, and so on. I'll follow convention in using the abbreviation, the means of production, and a working class with no realistic choice except to rent themselves out to the capitalist class. That's what Louis Blanc meant when he first invented the term capitalism in the 1850s. It's what the socialist left has always meant by it. That's what I mean by it. Uh, now, I understand Gene is probably going to use the term a bit differently. I'll wait for him to lay that out for himself. First, let's talk about what socialism might mean. Uh, because uh, historically, the socialist movement has been a very big tent. It's included socialists whose idea of socialism is that the state would just own everything. And it's included socialists who are also anarchists. And it's included many points in between. Libertarians are sometimes surprised to hear this, but historically, the overwhelming majority of people who call themselves anarchists also call themselves socialists. What all of these kinds of socialists had in common for all their differences was that while they recognized that the transition from feudalism to capitalism was important progress, definitely an increase in freedom and prosperity, and even an increase in certain dimensions of equality, they also weren't satisfied with capitalism. They wanted a version of modern industrial society that would no longer be divided between a working class and a capitalist class because there would be some sort of social or collective ownership of the means of production. So what form of social ownership do I advocate? Well, believe it or not, I'm not an ideologue, at least if an ideologue is someone who formulates a vision of a good society from first principles and sticks to it no matter what. I'm interested in learning the lessons, both positive and negative, from all the societies that existed in the 20th century. Soviet-style economic planning was very good at rapidly churning out tractors and tanks, and thank God for it, or else Hitler might have won World War II. Uh, but it also faced calculation problems. It was very bad at coordinating production with fine-grained consumer preferences. As my friend Bhaskar Sankara puts it, it was all thumbs and no fingers. And even if we imagine a better version of the Soviet Union, one where that economic model was combined with free speech and real multi-party elections, such that whichever party won a majority in parliament got to appoint the head of the state planning office, Goshplan, that version would be hobbled by many of the same problems. So that's not what I advocate. But libertarians who accurately point out the Soviet Union faced calculation problems tend to try to stretch the point wildly beyond what the empirical evidence really supports and say that the government running any enterprise uh, is going to lead to such problems. The fact is that there are sectors of the economy that Western democracies have quite successfully planned outside of the market. 
Healthcare is an obvious case. State-run health systems in countries like Canada and the UK aren't perfect. I've got a whole list of ways that they could be improved. But there is a reason that they're so wildly popular that even conservative politicians in those countries have to at least pretend to want to preserve them or they would never win an election again. Another obvious example is education. Even many charter school enthusiasts will acknowledge that some of the best education results in the world are in Finland, a country where every school is public. I'd also nominate energy and broadband uh, as industries of a type unlikely to run into calculation difficulties if they're planned by the state. But I'm perfectly happy to say that if we want prosperity, in other words, if we want there to be enough to distribute that our more equal distribution is going to be a big improvement for people currently holding the short end of the stick, we probably do need a market sector with price signals and firm failure. Even if I want a big welfare state, so the price of failure isn't destitution and begging for your basic needs on GoFundMe. So far, what I've described is just social democracy. What exists to varied extents uh, in countries like Norway, Denmark, and Sweden where capitalist property rights have been rolled back in some domains with many positive and civilizing consequences, but where the fundamentals of the economy are capitalist. But I want to go further than that. I'm a socialist. I want social ownership of the means of production, even in the remaining market sector. So how could we do that? Well, if we need private firms, they could at least be worker-owned private firms. On the model of the uh, Mondragon Corporation in Spain, or its equivalents in the Emilia Regatta area of Italy, where pay scales and operated agreements are democratically determined at annual or biannual mass meetings, and day-to-day management is in the hands of managers who are either directly elected by the workers or appointed by an elected workers' council. And to ensure a long-term stable domination of the private sector by such firms, the banks that give out grants to start new businesses would be nationalized. So. Would this arrangement be more equal than what we have now? Of course it would. At the world's largest worker-owned firm, Mondragon, the maximum allowable difference between the highest paid and lowest paid worker member is 11 to 1. And many of the member cooperatives within Mondragon insist on much lower differentials. This is the country, Spain, where the CEO to worker pay differential is 143 to 1. And Mondragon has to compete for managerial and technical talent with regular capitalist corporations. In a country um, where every private business was organized like Mondragon, those differences would be lower. That doesn't mean that everyone would earn exactly the same salary. Firms would need to offer worker members financial incentives for all sorts of purposes. But if you have to convince a majority of workers to approve a pay scale, you're just not going to get the difference that you get between what Bezos pays himself and what he pays the people who work at his warehouses. So far, we've covered equality and prosperity. What we have again to, of course, is the thing that really makes libertarians tick, which is liberty. They think that if we, you know, it might be sad if having a society that respects property rights leads to a wildly unequal distribution of, of resources and opportunities and life outcomes, and they might hope that it won't work out that way, And they might have all sorts of reassuring stories to tell themselves about how a really, truly free market wouldn't work out that way. But at the end of the day, they think that if poverty and inequality and extreme alienation and worker exploitation are the price of freedom, it's a price worth paying. 
But what's all too left unexamined in that calculation is what kind of freedom we're really talking about and whether on reflection, that kind of freedom is the kind that matters the most. Many libertarians will define their kind of freedom in terms of the non-aggression principle. This is freedom against interference with your person or your property. And look, I have no trouble understanding why rights against interference with your person are important. I'm sure I have lots of ground with libertarians in this audience uh, when it comes to the right of consented adults to pursue whatever sexual or romantic relationships they want without socially conservative interference, to use whatever drugs they want to and make whatever family planning decisions they want to without harassment and legal barriers and mandatory ultrasounds. But let's take a much harder look Five at minutes, the claim. Ben. Five minutes. Five minutes. Okay. At the claim that it's wrong to aggress not just against your person, but against your property and the means of production. What kind of property is yours? Well, it can't be whatever kind of property you're legally entitled to, because if so, libertarians could have no objection to legally mandated redistribution. You just aren't legally entitled to the property claimed by the IRS. Instead, as Matt Brudig points out, what we're really talking about is the property that you're morally entitled to. And the real issue at stake between libertarians and redistributionists isn't whether it's wrong to interfere with whatever people are morally entitled to keep, a tautology if there ever was one, but which redistribution of resources is morally just. One theory of distributive justice is that everyone is entitled to whatever they can get from market interactions, no matter how unequal the starting places of those interactions. But if you want to convince me of the moral superiority of that theory, over theories of distributive justice that emphasize regular human values like fairness and solidarity and giving everyone a way to flourish in life, all I can say is that all of your work is ahead of you. Instead, I would suggest the kind of freedom that matters most is freedom from unreasonable domination by one person over another. The kind of freedom we should care the most about is our freedom in practice to determine the course of our lives. And it should be obvious that redistributive social democratic programs greatly enhance this kind of freedom. In a society where you can lose your health insurance if you lose your job, you're a bit less likely to get a tattoo or a nose ring your boss doesn't like or express opinions he doesn't like or talk back when he asks you to do something you don't want to do. Um, in a society where labor laws favor strong union protections over the property rights of employers, you're a bit more likely to take the risk of getting your picture taken, marching down the street, in a protest march for a cause that your boss hates. These are important kinds of freedom. Another important kind of freedom emphasized by political theorists going back to ancient Greece is civic freedom, the free, your freedom to help shape the institutions that govern your life. I care about that, and that's one reason I'd rather live in a capitalist democracy like the United States rather than one of the capitalist dictatorships the United States has propped up in Latin America. Uh, but... I also don't think that a kind of democracy that stops at the door to workplace is good enough. A society where some people have no realistic choice but to accept jobs, where they have to pee in bottles to make their quotas, and some people already have private jets and ponder upgraded to spaceships, may be an improvement over slavery and feudalism, but it's not enough. We deserve better.
Oops, uh, yeah. Hope everybody hears me okay. Uh, thanks, Ben. And getting right to it, I'll be arguing that even the deeply flawed capitalism we have now, heavily distorted by government, government interference on behalf of the powerful, is preferable to Ben's socialism in promoting freedom, prosperity, and equality. And if Ben would join me in rolling back crony capitalism, freedom, prosperity, and equality could be radically enhanced along with Ben's own aim for enhanced worker ownership of firms. Let's start with emphasizing that private property rights in the means of production under capitalism consists of wide open choices about the way firms are owned and organized. Ben strongly favors worker-owned firms run democratically, and they already exist in the U.S., as he himself said. Back in the 1980s, the pro-capitalist weekly National Review published an article strongly endorsing worker ownership. I'm quite familiar with that article since it was written by me. When I covered the worker ownership movement in the 1980s, we heard much about the Mondragon Corporation in Spain, an immense worker-owned firm that Ben also celebrates. It was built up by the workers themselves with virtually no government help in a country much poorer than the U.S. Uh, yet four decades later, we see no worker-owned firms on the scale of Mondragon in the U.S. According to Ben, if you work in a conventionally structured capitalist firm, you are, quote, here I'm quoting him, uh, 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 subject to a totalitarian level of control of your every action, unquote, and in return for your labor, you are paid, quote, poverty wages. Ben has also written that, quote, worker cooperatives do about as well and last about as long as traditional hierarchical firms once they get going, unquote. So if ben, it must be a huge reservoir of anger about working under totalitarianism for poverty wages, and given the track record of worker-owned firms, you'd expect workers to use their financial power to make Mondragons the dominant mode by now. To clarify what I mean by workers' financial power, let's review a few readily available figures. Ben has mentioned, quote, libertarian economist Gene Epstein as having emphasized that low-income people do control a massive chunk of the wealth of our society when all of their incomes are pooled together, unquote, which Ben goes on to call a true statement on my part. Uh, uh, to elaborate on the truth that he graciously acknowledges, consider that the bottom half of the population accounts for one-third of all consumer spending and the bottom 90% for nearly four-fifths. Since I assume that Ben would agree that the fat cat capitalists belong in the top 10%, that means the workers in the <coughs> lower 90% collectively control nearly four fifths of the consumer dollar. Now take wealth, which is defined as assets minus liabilities. According to the Federal Reserve data, the lower 90% holds 37 trillion in wealth, including trillions in stocks and bonds, and more than 8 trillion in real estate that could be converted to cash via second mortgages. 
This financial firepower could establish Mondragon's nationwide through any number of strategies. Take the classic capitalist tactic, the consumer boycott. The profit margin of non-financial corporations has been ranging from 13% to 17%. Again, the lower 90% accounts for nearly 80% of all consumption. Now say we target certain firms with a sustained consumer boycott that denies these firms 20% of the normal revenue. So if you do the math, the boycott would then turn their profits into chronic losses, driving them into bankruptcy and making it possible for workers to buy them up for pennies on the dollar. The funds for acquisition could come from part of the trillions the lower 90% already hold, or perhaps from the more than a trillion held by labor union pension funds, or the tens of trillions held by labor unions worldwide. These are all conventional capitalist maneuvers, totally acceptable under capitalism. Ben has actually recognized that boycotts can be effective in achieving their goals, but he fails to see the role of boycotts in achieving his own goals. He writes, quote, that geographically diffuse customers encouraging each other to engage in long-term boycotts of a long list of companies for a long list of reasons detached from any realistic strategy or even well-defined goals simply isn't in the same category as those other boycotts. Unquote. But for anyone serious like Ben about worker ownership, the strategy would be quite realistic with a single quite well-defined goal. When Ben speaks of the difficulties of motivating, quote, geographically diffuse customers, he seems to have forgotten his own claims about the, the anger of the lower 90% who work under totalitarian conditions for poverty wages or the potential of worker-owned firms to thrive once they get going. Socialists like Ben uh, could surely reach these geographically diffuse customers through grassroots movement, movements amply supplemented by social media, and they could unleash all this passion once they clarify the goal of the boycott and the odds of its success. Ben has also objected that achieving worker ownership through capitalist means isn't feasible since most new ventures fail. But in this case, I'm not talking about new ventures, but about buying up established ventures for very little. And then once they become co-ops, underwriting their longevity through workers favoring these firms as consumers, similar to the way consumers have preferred products bearing the union label. But again, I'm using the boycott as just one example. Say that 20% that of the consumer dollar could be committed to patronizing worker-owned startups. Since capitalist investors have awesome respect for the power of the consumer dollar, there would likely be no difficulty in getting any number of conventional sources to back these ventures. Another problem in Ben's view is that, quote, it's easier to attract investors for businesses that can reward investment with ongoing investment shares. Uh, but it's a common practice to issue different classes of stock that would leave voting rights exclusively with the worker owners while otherwise permitting outsiders to retain ongoing shares. Or, of course, bonds could be issued to outside investors while exploiting the huge tax advantages on borrowed funds that the federal government already makes available to employee stock ownership plans. Ben has also objected that worker-owned firms can't compete with established firms since these firms pay poverty wages. But the aggregate data reveal that in 2019, 
all private sector firms spent an average of 75,000 per employee in compensation. A lot of that average is, of course, soaked up by the inflated pay of the executive class. And just as Ben says, the worker-owned firms would, of course, save fortunes on that inflated pay. So worker co-ops could easily compete and probably pay their workers more than most workers own earn at Mondragon. Of course, another obstacle is that most workers may not want the headaches of owning and operating their own firms. The unwillingness of workers to follow the Marxist playbook is as old as Marxism itself, and in response, socialists keep resorting to the coercive power of government. In keeping with that disastrous tradition, Ben once, quote, to nationalize a few big banks, unquote, and then direct them to bankroll worker ownership. Since I want to end the banking cartel run by the Federal Reserve that enriches the powerful, I strongly object to any centralized authority commandeering scarce funds in this way. Ben surely rejects such scruples, especially in view of his lofty goal. But he should still be troubled by the old contradiction of radical change from below being implemented by the iron fist of government from above. He should recognize that any radical change worth having should be actively implemented by the people it's supposed to benefit. He should also see this strategy as the best way to achieve his own goals. Instead of having to convince a majority of the electorate to vote for worker ownership, a massive worker ownership movement could be built from a minority in the capitalist marketplace. And if Ben is right that this is a better way to spend one's working life, the worker-owned sector should soon win over the majority to the force of its example. But Ben might also be plagued by the feeling that he's selling a used car that most workers don't want. A 2016 Pew Research survey of workers reported that half of respondents said they were very satisfied with their jobs, while another 30% reported being somewhat satisfied, which hardly sounds like angry people working for poverty wages under totalitarian conditions. But visionaries like Steve Jobs were never deterred by surveys, and I'm not trying to deter Ben. I'm only asking him to recognize that free market capitalism offers him clear ways to turn his vision into a reality, and that his only real obstacle is that his vision may not be that inspiring to those he hopes to inspire. Ben's preference for the iron fist of government is the reason he and I are taking opposite sides in this debate. One dark part of his vision, especially dark part, part, part is that he would specifically outlaw voluntary agreements between individuals and firms to work as wage and salary employees, even after worker co-ops become dominant. So in this key respect, Ben's concept of freedom is disturbingly different from mine and maybe different from yours. He advocates a form of socialism that will put freedom, prosperity, and equality under siege, just like the old socialism did. Let's assume that a socialist party wins a national election and the government makes Ben's socialism a reality. Since wage and salary employment would soon be outlawed, the, the government would no doubt put all such firms and workers on notice that their days are permanently 
numbered. Since there would be resist, could be resistance to this edict, the government would have to be willing to threaten the offenders with jail. And Ben not only wants to nationalize a few banks, referring to the finance sector as part of the, quote, commanding heights of the economy, he writes that finance would be, quote, moved out of the market entirely, unquote. So he would shut down the nearly 50 billion raised annually through crowdfunding and the several hundred billion allocated through various forms of venture capital. He regards it as an improvement to place finance in government hands since finance would then be under democratic control. But very little can happen in any economy unless funds are available to finance it. And to pick up on an objection raised by journalist Connor Friedersdorf, we might ask, how easy will it be to get the democratically run finance agencies to fund the expansion plans of firms that produce Muslim prayer rugs and Korans and, uh, and uh, the building of new mosques? Friedersdorf asks, quote, would you prefer a social society in which birth control is available if and only if a majority of workers exercising their democratic control assents? Or would you prefer a society in which private businesses can produce birth control in part because individuals possess economic rights as producers and consumers, the preferences of majority of people around them be damned, unquote? The question applies to the related issue of freedom of speech and press. Would you prefer a social society in which dissenting journalism is available if and only if a majority of workers exercising their democratic control agrees? Or would you prefer a society in which private enterprises can produce dissenting journalism, the preferences of a majority of people around them be damned? So at best, our freedoms will be thwarted by the tyranny of majorities. But we don't have to push this decisive objection because in practice, elected representatives and their appointees will exercise most of the real power. Directly uh, confronting this issue, Ben has written, quote, the heart of democratic socialism is an acknowledgement that private sector authoritarianism can be as much of a threat to meaningful freedom and equality as authoritarian government policies, unquote. Our most beloved living president, Barack Obama, might correct Ben on that point. According to an article in an August 2014 issue of the British newspaper, The Guardian, Five quote, minutes, Gene. Five yeah, minutes. quote, New York Times reporter uh, uh, James Risen, who faces jail over his refusal to reveal a source, has called President Obama the greatest enemy of press freedom in a generation. As left-wing journalist Glenn Greenwald has pointed out, Obama used the 1917 Espionage Act to criminally prosecute more journalists, including James Risen, than all previous presidents combined. So here's just one key difference between the authoritarianism of government and the authoritarianism of the private sector. The worst Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook can do is deplatform you. The worst Barack Obama could do is lock you in a cage and, if he, and he made it plain that he was quite prepared to do just 
that. If, as Ben says, the heart of democratic socialism is to see no meaningful difference between these two forms of authoritarianism, then democratic socialism is badly in need of a change of heart or even a heart transplant. It was an outrage when the Tom Woods show elite Facebook began to create a rast by frightened fascists at Facebook for dissenting statements by some of its members. But that offered an, a, an opportunity to a competitor named Miwi. But if Ben gets his way and Obama is, is president, then he'll choke off all funding for Miwi because uh, if he's prepared to jail us, he's certainly prepared to, to cut off funding. So free access to financing, uh, without free access to financing, you have virtually no chance of exercising the rights of free speech and free press. Now take prosperity. The force that brings prosperity is innovation, or what economist Joseph Schumpeter called creative destruction. Ben thinks as long as people can be offered another job, they'll agree to giving up their current job to allow creative destruction to happen. But since people naturally resist change, imagine the response if Steve Jobs sought funding for a smartphone that would, that upended so many different industries. The financial planners will have at least two perfect excuses for rejecting any projects they don't like. First, most new ideas don't work out. Second, the economic reality of scarcity, there is never enough to go around. So the planners will easily reject any proposals they don't like. And in Steve Jobs' case, he'd probably be rejected right away because he might adamantly insist on employing wage and salary workers. So freedom and prosperity would both be under siege under Ben's system of socialism. And on the issue of equality, as Noam Chomsky has pointed out, you can find income inequality in a prison where power is quite unequal. And political power will be more unequal than even under our flawed system of capitalism, which is preferable by far to what Ben proposes in terms of freedom, prosperity, and equality. Because we have so two many minutes, Gene. avenues. Two minutes, Two minutes. Because we have so many avenues of private funding, dissident publications like Jacobin Magazine, Reason Magazine, books like Ben Burgess, and a debate series like The Soul Forum can persist. Because we have private funding and reasonably functioning consumer and capital markets, uh, innovation that brings prosperity can, and can persist and even flourish. And on income inequality, the turn toward capitalism in countries like China and India has lifted hundreds of millions out of grinding poverty and has therefore meant a narrowing of income inequality narrowly, but certainly the most important equality, political equality, will mean that the political, that the power of the few to dictate to us through that power over financing will mean a, a, a great decline, a great widening of political equality. As mentioned, if Ben would join me in rolling back crony capitalism, we could give workers more access to new jobs uh, if they lose old ones and more access to higher paying jobs, therefore, thereby reducing income inequality and enhancing the prospects for worker ownership. We could rein in the Federal Reserve, whose policies clearly foster wealth inequality and inequality of power. Uh, and maybe Ben will join me in fighting for the radical rollback of state power, making it harder for politicians like Obama to threaten dissonance with prison and harder for the government to, to intimidate and co-opt big tech CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg. Thanks. Thank you very much, Gene. Ben, you have seven and a half minutes. All right. 
Uh, going to try to be quick because there's a lot there to get to. Uh, first point I want to make is that Barack Obama, uh, who's not beloved by me, uh, could, uh, could, fu- could prosecute James Risen. Uh, the one thing that he would not be able to do is fire random public employees uh, who, uh, who agreed with James Risen because public employees have free speech protections in our society that private employees typically do not. I would also point out that I'm very confused about where he gets this idea that I want to um, eliminate GoFundMe. Uh, this came up in his previous debate with my friend Bhaskar Sankara. He said, uh, uh, you know, he, he said somehow when Bhaskar said we want to nationalize banks, uh, he interpreted that as we want to nationalize GoFundMe. And Bhaskar said, you know, when he like it finally came up, said, no, I don't want to, I don't want to get rid of GoFundMe. Where are you getting that? And I said the same thing last time I debated Gene on Dave Smith's show. So I'm, I'm very confused about where this idea comes from. Okay, what have I said? What I have said is that I want an economic system where the division of society between workers and capitalists has been erased through social ownership of the means of production. I've argued that a grounded and realistic instantiation of this vision might look like an extremely advanced version of social democracy with the key difference that the remaining market sector would be composed of worker-owned firms. Gene doesn't seem to like the first half of that vision, although he hasn't really told us why not, and he thinks the second half could and should be achieved without violating any capitalist property rights, simply through building up a network of worker-owned firms within the existing system and using consumer boycotts to bring down the remaining capitalists. So there are two claims there, a could and a should. Let's start with the should. Gene's normative claim is that it would be wrong to bring about workers' control through political action because this would violate property rights. I argued against the conception of uh, freedom that that assumes in my opening statement, and all I can say on that point is that I have yet to hear a response. On the second claim, the descriptive claim, that social change uh, can happen more quickly or effectively through the use of consumer power, that's just not what the empirical record shows. Uh, we're holding this debate in Florida, a state where last fall Donald Trump won the election, but the $15 minimum wage ballot resolution won by more. Um, Five minutes, Ben. No surprises there. A higher minimum wage has long been wildly popular. But ask yourself a very simple question. Why didn't Floridians accomplish this goal by using their consumer power instead of waiting to accomplish it with politics? Why did they only patronize companies that paid at least $15 an hour when they roamed the aisles at uh, Publix or Winn-Dixie, I, I used to live in Florida, uh, and raise the wage floor that way with no state intervention necessary. Does the fact they didn't do it this way show that Florida voters don't really want a higher minimum wage floor, that they're you know refusing to follow the higher minimum wage floor playbook, uh, like Gene said about workers and the Marxist playbook? Uh, or think about one of the most important expansions of human freedom in American history in the last century, the end of the doctrine of coverture, where many of the legal rights and obligations of a married woman were subsumed by those of her husband. Was this hideous restriction of women's rights ended by a mass refusal of couples to legally marry, uh, perhaps instead go into lawyers to draft contracts that replicated certain aspects of marriage but without coverture? Uh, one could imagine a 19th century Gene Epstein insisted that doing things this way was the only way to bring about an end of coverture without violating the freedom of contract of men and women who had voluntarily gotten married the old way. 
But of course, coverture didn't end that way. And of course, Floridians didn't get their $15 wage this way. And of course, the end of the division of society between workers and capitalists isn't going to happen that way. Uh, when we're making life decisions like getting married or starting businesses, most of us realistically will take the path of least resistance and work within the institutions of life as we know it instead of worried in that context about how we think those institutions should be different. We make these decisions not as engaged citizens brought together at the ballot box to pursue collective action, but as atomized individuals shepherded along by considerations more pressing to us in the moment. And that's nowhere more true than where we go shopping. While we're at it, uh, segregation didn't end primarily because of consumer boycotts, although the civil rights movement did use them, and I'm not against using them as one of many tactics to bring about more worker cooperatives. Um, that didn't happen any more than slavery was ended by abolitionists building up networks of free labor cotton farms and boycotting slave plantations as the primary mechanisms. Uh, these Martin Luther King's key tactic was using sit-ins to violate capitalist property rights and then further curbing those property rights with, you know, by successfully advocating for the Civil Rights Act of 1964, without which I think we all know there would still be plenty of whites-only signs in restaurant windows. You can object to this, as Rand Paul infamously did, on the grounds that the most important freedom is the freedom of business owners to do whatever they want with their property, but you can't plausibly argue that social change occurs more quickly and effectively when its advocates abstain from political action and only use consumer power. Two minutes. Following Cotter's free, Cotter, I could never say Cotter's last name, Cotter F. Uh, following Cotter F, Gene has argued that economic democracy would endanger the rights of minorities. But if he thinks this would happen, not due to worker ownership, which he likes if it comes about the right way, but due to grants from us, publicly owned banks as the primary form, not exclusive form, but primary form of financing new cooperatives in my democratic socialist vision, all I can say is that we should be deeply skeptical of that vision. Status zoning boards and liquor boards already exist, but somehow or another, we still have kosher restaurants being routinely approved for liquor licenses in a predominantly Christian society. We still have mosques being routinely approved for by zoning boards in a society where Islamophobia is a real problem. And we still have libertarian magazines that, ad that advocate the One end minute. of all of these things delivered every day by our publicly owned postal service. So this, I don't think is a compelling worry. I think our real disagreement centers on one issue, whether stamping out the savage and immensely destructive levels of economic inequality that exist in our society and giving working people far more control over their lives on the job is more important than respecting capitalist property rights. I think it is. Thank you very much. Gene, you have seven and a half minutes. Yeah. Well, correcting Ben on the could and should. Um, as I, I hope Riley implied, I don't think that working people are interested in the used car that Ben is trying to sell. Uh, the, he just got through talking about the savage inequality, the suffering of people. And yet, and then he's suddenly talking about the atomization of society and how can you reach these people? I mean, again, the problem is that maybe secretly Ben believes his own bluff is being called. The point is that if there is indeed a, a working class 
class misery uh, uh, nationwide, as Ben likes to allude to, then it's not difficult to tap it, to tap this energy, to point out the way forward, more or less the, like Martin Luther King, Luther King did when he said, let's boycott the buses. And yet Ben seems to veer from um, being a Marxist firebrand to being a cynic about what is possible in society. But in fact, if you take his Marcus, Marxist firebrand rhetoric seriously, then these opportunities are staring him in the face. Uh, it's a little bit, of course, ugly to deal with boycotts, uh, not just with boycotts, by the way, Ben, you have 80% of the consumer dollar, you've got 35 trillion, you've got all that anger out there, presumably, the savage uh, uh, inequalities and the, and the lack of power that workers get, well, then go for it. And yet, Ben refuses to, because the next thing you know, he's talking about the atomization of society and people only vote for, well, then maybe people don't want what you're selling, Ben. Uh, so the, the, the real test would be try to organize, try to, we don't have a Mondragon in the US, uh, built in a much poorer country. Try to build it, roll up your sleeves, get out of the, uh, try to inspire others. You want to stay in your ivory tower, go ahead. Now with respect to GoFundMe, I mean, there's also there's this gesture, which is that, oh, well, you can have a little bit of capitalism, a little bit of independent financing. You just can't have any venture capital firms. You, you, and by the way, we're going to keep the Federal Reserve. We're going to keep all the centralization of financial power that that Ben and I should both object to. But of course, I guess I could ask Ben a hypothetical: What if, what if, if, if GoFundMe is the only way to finance something financially uh, to in, in in Ben's society? Then uh, what if it grows to five trillion dollars? What if it could become so um, now, you know, because it's under control because there are so many other ways. But the point is that there's this the business, of a little bit of capitalism, you know, you play with that. That's good. But, you know, don't let it get too big because then, then we socialists will get upset. So so we'll, we'll let you keep GoFundMe, but we won't let you keep all the other ways in which people get financing and start their own enterprise. I, I, I mean, I mean with, with respect to Obama and, I know, and, and changing the subject with respect to whether people could be protected from the First Amendment or not, um, that's, that, that's a separate issue that we might be able to discuss. But again, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the, the act under which Obama was indicting people, you could get imprisoned and indeed you could get executed. The, the alien, the, that act had executed the Rosenbergs. So so it was just an indication that even a nice politician like Obama is willing to use his power. Give him the power, enhanced power over finance, and, and he's not going to tolerate any dissent. These are realities that are staring, should stare, Ben, in the face, given what he's proposing. Uh, the uh, it, uh, A little bit, I mean, with respect to the atomized individuals and the uh, what what the other one was had to do with my idea that if you uh, leave it to a vote uh, uh, in all cases, by the way, obviously most of us will not have any time in the day to vote on all the enterprises that people want. It's uh, We'll obviously have to have elected representatives making up their minds about who gets funded and who and who doesn't. But if we even we want to accept that fantasy again, I know Ben is suddenly talking about the real world in which people don't have to take it to a vote. 
uh, in which you can start a deli, you can do what you want, you can exercise that freedom. But Ben only wants to leave you with a little bit of GoFundMe, although I can guarantee you that if GoFundMe becomes so popular because there are no alternatives that it grows to five, six trillion dollars, Ben is going to shut it down. And uh, no, no, 20 trillion dollars, Ben, at what point are you going to stop it? No, never? fascinated to hear you tell me what I think. Okay, well, well, that's wonderful. Okay, then then Ben is going to let, and then then I guess let, let a thousand, but, but I don't know why he's going to prevent venture capital from happening, because that funds businesses that he doesn't like, because he wants to make it a criminal offense to work for a firm as a wage and salary worker. And so, and so he doesn't want to allow that. So he's going to have a, a, a government that is going to be endlessly on the prowl to suppress our misbehavior. Uh, and uh, that, that way lies a dystopia. I don't even know if Ben is going to stick to his plan with respect to, to not allowing Two wage minutes. and salary labor to happen. I mean, the reason why we might want it, even if Ben's fantasy happens and workers get enthusiastic about his idea, which he, by the way, he's not the least bit in selling them because you're just a bunch of atomized idiots. On the other hand, of course, you're filled with savage anger. But uh, uh, you're, you're a bunch of atomized idiots. And therefore, I don't need to bother with you to advocate what we can do with a consumer dollar and with all the trillions that you're holding. Uh, but but what? But if I would be perfectly happy to live in that society, if indeed that's what people voluntarily want, that's what they create, just like they created Vondragon. Uh, so that's fine. But Ben, but then then I might say, look, a lot of these companies are kind of mismanaged. I, I've been part of co-op apartment buildings. I've been part of landlord apartment buildings in New York City. You know, I actually prefer the landlord apartment buildings because there are people who take over who are nutty, who make crazy decisions, who mismanage. So I might say, I would like to work for that guy as a wage and salary worker. Is that okay? Ben is going to say, no, go to jail, go to directly to jail. This is not allowed in a socialist society. Uh, and so, again, I even think, if I may over-psychologize, that Ben is a little bit fearful about the seductiveness of actually working for a capitalist firm and working under those circumstances. And clearly, clearly, he doesn't trust, seemingly doesn't trust people to share his anger about seconds, all that Gene. totalitarianism under capitalist firms. Thank you. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more to help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking, your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. So we are now moving on to the 30-minute question and answer portion. Uh, if you have a question, please line up at one of the two microphones in the back. But before we do that, would either of the speakers like to ask a question for each other? I have one question for Ben. You have a question for me, Ben? I do. Uh, can you hear me here? Yes. Yeah. Okay, go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious about your interpretation of, uh, of the claim about atomization because- about what? I'm sorry about the claim about atomization. Atomization. Because it seems to me that what I thought I said was that it is realistic to organize a democratic majority at the ballot box and that this is a more effective strategy than hoping to get it done through consumer power. I don't think that's calling people idiots. I think that it's saying that there are certain paths to social change that are more realistic than others 
although they certainly include persuading a majority. Well, so could you say a little bit more I, about why, I, I, I think how it is that you got the idea that I was, I was calling people idiots or I didn't think I could I, convince them? I think uh, I take it back about the idiot part of it, Ben, apologies a thousand times over. I'm, I'm, only, I'm only trying to say that, that a, 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 a socialist analysis would say that people have certain things in common and great leaders like Basco Sankara or Ben Burgess uh, can articulate to them those common uh, 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 feelings and grievances that they have and render them and say, look, this is what you have in common, you 90%. You work under totalitarian conditions. Uh, you, uh, you take orders all the time. You're miserable. It's wretched, just like you said. And therefore, I, I would think that those people should listen to you if it resonates, if there's validity in what you say. And then the other benefit is that voting, voting for something in a voting booth is very different from actually living it and implementing. That's what we did during the 1960s and 70s. We didn't wait to vote for it, Ben. We voted to live it, to actually uh, embody it. And so, again, that's why I'm suggesting to you as a good Marxist, as a good socialist, uh, recognize that this atomization doesn't have to last because according to you, what people have in common is this misery of working under uh, uh, under capitalism. So that's a common problem. That's as old, that analysis is as old as Marxism itself. Go for it. And yet you refuse to. And that's my problem with it. You refuse to see that that the that the ways of going about it are staring in you in the face uh, if you use the power of the consumer, the power of finance. That's what Martin Luther King did. He organized the Martin people Luther according to grievances. Excuse me? It's not the primary thing that Martin Luther King did. It's what, a what, tactic that he used, but it wasn't the, me, the primary what, tactic. What it wasn't did, the most effective tactic. That's in part what Martin Luther King, which you can also do, but you don't seem to want to. And I wonder why you don't seem to recognize that the atomization can be overcome by simply articulating to these people the common misery that they all suffer from. It's a very Marxist view. May I ask you my question, Ben? I'm curious about this. Uh, with respect to Mondragon, uh, I read a very very sympathetic portrait of Mondragon, uh, and uh, and but one of the things it pointed out to is that the growth of Mondragon has by and large been fueled by uh, by the expanded employment of wage and salary workers. Now this now I I believe by the way I would comment that that while I'm all for worker co-ops, one of the contradictions in a worker co-op is that is that the worker owners are often reluctant to give up their ownership. And now uh, again, this is what is fueling the expansion of Mondragon, the the the, the increased employee employment of wage and salary workers. You do want to outlaw that in your social society, right? For starters, and 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 on top of that, then doesn't it disturb you that Mondragon is growing based upon that kind of corruption? That's my question. All right. Uh, so first of all, just to make sure that we're clear about this for the record, the overwhelming majority of people who work for Mondragon are voting members. That's compatible with saying that recent growth uh, has has been of contractors, and of course, we live in a capitalist society. Uh, where that's uh, that's that's an option. There's tremendous incentives to take it. It's very unsurprising, uh, but it's still. I think Madrigal remains as a model of a very successful firm uh, where uh, where you have democratic worker ownership. Now, Anjian's question about uh, outlawing uh, certain kinds of wage contracts, I think that uh, I think that yes, I'm totally comfortable with that. 
and perhaps might be cheating to uh, to turn this into a question, but I would be uh, I'd be very curious about his thoughts about labor contracts that we already outlaw in the society that uh, that exists right now. I would give the two examples of minimum wage laws and sexual harassment laws uh, that we already outlaw. Uh, you know, minimum wage, we already outlaw labor contracts where the wages are too low. We do that without constantly roving around for people to put in prison uh, as, as if that were the only way that we could enforce some regulation. We already outlaw jobs where you have to accept the advances of the boss as a condition for working there. People are already not allowed to enter into those contracts. I'd be very curious if Gene thinks that those uh, prohibitions should be maintained or if he objects to those as much as he objects to labor contracts that take away people's democratic voice and vote in the workplace. And if he does object to one, but not the other, what the difference is. Okay. Uh, ben, I, I guess I, I, I have to sort of finesse the issue a little bit, because if we go down the road of, uh, of the sexual harassment in the workplace and all the rest of it, then uh, uh, I should have invited somebody from the New York Times, not a bona fide, real life socialist such as yourself. I can only say, Ben, that, that there were over 100 million people, 140 million people in this country who work under totally legal and, and, and non-threatened wage and salary agreements. That's what I did most of my life. And so it, it's quite radical for you, if you take over, to say to these 140 million, your days are permanently numbered, you can persist in this, you're going to go to prison. So I, I, I have to finesse Strong the issue man. by only saying that I did not see anything wrong with the wage and salary agreement that I had, uh, I, and uh, and I, I don't see anything wrong with with 140 million wage and salary agreements that are pretty much set. Certainly, nothing wrong in the sense that I would make them a crime, as you would, and I and I believe that you would make them a crime because you're afraid of this creeping capitalism. Indeed, you you're by the way are perfectly right that if we go in the direction, which I don't anticipate, of worker ownership, and we might get tired of it. We might find that so many firms have mismanaged that wage and salary employment becomes more popular. And that's apparently a real hellish possibility for you, and you want the iron fist of government to prevent it from ever happening. This will cause a lot of resistance, Ben. I myself would be a part of, of civil disobedience to anybody who would tell me I can't sign on with somebody for the kind of job I had as a wage and salary employee. That is true fascism. So notice that he didn't answer my question. I, no, I didn't answer, answer your question about sexual harassment, Ben. It's true. And I didn't ask you to answer your question about a minimum wage. I'm only trying to address the larger question, which is that the 140 million people who have wage and salary employment uh, should not be thrown in prison. But notice, first of all, throwing people in prison for accepting such employment is an obvious straw man for reasons I've already pointed out. We already have laws against all these other labor contracts, and we're not going around rampantly putting people in prison well, we have for accepting employment we have under the prohibited conditions. We have so that's just not right. We have Clearly, we can enforce regulations we without having to throw workers in prison for rushing well, well, to well, accept ben, the prohibited ben, arrangements. Ben. And this 140 million people thing yes. is also not a disanalogy between 
outlawing taking away people's voice and vote at the workplace and outlawing labor contracts where people are paid too little or accept sexual harassment on the job. Before we had minimum wage laws, there were, you know, surely at least 140 million of people or the equivalent given the population at the time who were working in, uh, in workplaces where the lowest paid people could be paid less than that. Before we had sexual harassment laws, there were tens of millions of women working in workplaces uh, with no such, uh, no such prohibitions. Those are just not disanalogies. Of course, all of these things are radical changes at the time that they're proposed. But the question is, do we think that there's any reason why we would need more of a carceral solution uh, rather than simply fines and lighter forms of punishment to the overwhelmed majority of cases to enforce this than how we enforce minimum wage laws and sexual harassment laws? And do we have any reason uh, to, uh, to think well, that if Gene is right, right, let's say his prediction is completely correct, that uh, that we have democratic socialism, uh, it's a disaster uh, because uh, even though our current empirical evidence suggests otherwise, worker-owned firms are vastly less efficient, etc. Okay, he should have no trouble convincing a majority of his fellow citizens at the ballot box to democratically restore capitalism. Why isn't he confident about that? Why doesn't he believe in himself and his ability to spread his libertarian message and win a democratic majority at the ballot box? I've got to, okay, I see, I see, Jane. And uh, and you would never, ever, let's say we, let's say you, you, you pass the law I mean, and obviously the analogy is that if you if you sexually harassed or you're getting paid a better wage, then you're generally you'll be for it. I had a decent wage and salary job. Tens of millions of people do. You're going to tell me I can't do it anymore? Uh, or indeed, not that it's a disaster. May I finish, Ben? Again, I had, you were at it for a while. Uh, you're 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 going to tell. Uh, you, you, I, I didn't say that it's going to be a disaster. Only that it could be an option. I there are decent co-ops in New, in New York. City. So many of them are run by lunatics. I would prefer a landlord building. But now Ben says, okay, once again, if you want to avoid prison, then go to the ballot. Ben, again, my question to you is that let's say, let's say 50, 30 million firms and, and 20 million workers refuse the edict and they continue to work as wage and salary workers and they're reasonably happy. How are you going to stop it unless you throw them in prison? The same way. We stop people from working for some minimum wage without throwing people in prison. The same way we stop people from working at workplaces where there's sexual harassment without throwing them in prison. The same way that we enforce every other labor law without mass imprisonment. This idea that the only way to enforce an economic regulation is by throwing people in prison left or right. I don't understand I where this comes from and how are you going to stop them? What, what are you stopping them for? You're giving them a democratic voice and vote on the job. If they choose not to participate in management elections, of course, nobody's going to force them ben, any more than ben, people ben, are currently ben, forced ben, to, uh, to vote ben, in regular November ben, elections. That's great. That's what great. hardship are you seeing people being that's, given by being given the option of voting in such great, elections? It's great that you raised that question, Ben. I'm in the co-op. I have the option of voting. I would rather live in a landlord building. 
The point is that I have the option of, I will have the option of voting. But if somebody advertises, look, I think I can manage a firm better in this industry and give you wage and salary employment, I'll have the right to sign on. The idea that everything, everything has to happen through the ballot box, that everything has to happen by, by changing a law. And the idea, by the way, in your view, that that the that wage and salary employment, which is immense, totally unprecedented in terms of what you're suggesting in size and the idea that you would never have to use the force of government, that's a fantasy. But apart from that, again, let me teach you. The point is that you want to might want to work for a way for an Asian salary employment because it looks because others have told you or looks as though it's better managed. That's what I would why I'd rather work in the landlord. But just then to say, just vote. Just stay there and vote. No, you're not allowed to work for wage and salary employment. That's forbidden. But vote and uh, you know and and uh, and do your thing. Well you may find that you can't even do your job well if it's mismanaged. That's why it's healthy to let a hundred flowers bloom. That's not what you want, Ben. And I don't. And I, by the way, I don't even know why you're so fearful of it. Why shouldn't? Why? What? Why should it not happen? Let's say people want it. Why is it a fear for you? Everything you've said, literally everything, could apply to somebody advocating minimum wage laws in a country where they did not exist. Look at how many people. Work in workplaces where they have less, uh, they make less than this. How are you going to stop people if they post advertisements for jobs for less than the minimum wage? But somehow we don't have mass imprisonment uh, in the enforcement of minimum wage laws, and yet they are by and large enforced. You believe in in strong property rights. Presumably, you don't believe that we have to to imprison people left and right for squatting, right? You think, though, that somehow or another, those laws are going to be enforced. So I think this is really a false talking dichotomy about 80 to 90% between we don't of the have economic regulations okay. and we enforce economic regulations through mass imprisonment. Okay. 80 to 90% of the workforce, Ben, is what you're talking about. Totally unprecedented. And again, you ducked my question. What, Which question do you think I ducked? What makes you fear... People oh, do well, it. that's just mind reading. You're claiming to know my motivations, makes, and I obviously don't accept uh, your ability well, to read well, my mind and detect well, fear Well, obviously, there. it is a fear, not, not, not in terms of emotion. It's obviously a bad thing to happen. It's a bad, what, what would happen if it did happen? What, what, is what would happen if what happened? Wage and salary employment, then. With wage and salary employment, uh, then what would happen is workplaces where people were denied rights that I think that they should have. So, yes, I think that in that sense, if you want to call being against something, fear of it, sure, so do I. But on the other hand, I think go around the streets, the overwhelming majority of people in Florida and in the United States support minimum wage laws for any of Floridians just voting to raise it to $50 an hour. Do you think they're afraid of what would happen if we had uh, workplaces where you could earn lower wages? That's, that's, that seems like a very like silly claim and to me. What you basically said to me as a wage and salary employer is that you know better about how I should have spent my life. I, I, what I, ben, you may, you may want to... What? Excuse me? That's, that's what I basically say. Well, it is that what you're basically saying. And I, and I suggest to you then that you bring your case to people uh, and tell them that, that there is a way to a better life, but they're too atomized for you. You don't want to do that. Nope. Uh, anyway, 
Uh, they're, they're not if we do it at the ballot box, which is where gotta, social change has happened most effectively we, we got, we, in we American got, history. They're not too atomized for that. I think that this equation of thinking that some strategies for social change involving democratically majorities based on persuasion are more effective than others means saying, oh, people are too atomized. This is a caricature. I'll give Gene a few more seconds to respond to that, but we need to move questions. on to the audience Q&A pretty soon. Uh, please state your question in the form of a question and address to the speaker, uh, which you'd like them to answer. Yes, uh, a question for Ben, please. It seems that, uh, Ben, you keep making the assumption that a majority of people would like, uh, let, let's say, a minimum wage. Well, a majority of people would like a million dollars in their bank account. Does that make it right? Just because a majority of people want something, a majority of people could vote that all redheaded Chinese babies should be thrown in the Atlantic Ocean. Does that make it right, Ben? No, but I also don't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to take a bold stand here. I'm against throwing the redheaded Chinese babies into the Atlantic Ocean, So, uh, which is good. I would hate to let this go by without me saying something controversial. Uh, but I'm also not sure where you get the idea that I am saying that. Uh, the, I didn't say at any point in this debate, I have never hinted at thinking that anything a majority of the public supports is therefore morally right. I'm not sure where that comes from. What I have said is in response to Gene saying that I am not confident that I can convince people to want what I want. I've said, yeah, I am confident if we do it in the way that history has taught us that persuasion, building that majority coalition, achieving social change is most promisingly done, which is through democratic mechanisms at the ballot box. Well, let me let me comment on that again, just briefly. Again, uh, obviously, gr obviously, grassroots movements, people actually implementing change and being part of it. That's a true radical vision. Uh, but Ben, the, the ballot box is very easy. You, you vote for a particular candidate on 90 different things. People often don't even know what the heck they're voting for at the ballot box. But that's that indeed, historically, things have happened at the ballot box. And Ben honors that tradition. Uh, he doesn't want to, to persuade workers uh, specifically because uh, he doesn't think that uh, they're, they're, uh, they can be organized uh, easily enough. Clearly, that's the problem. Even though I clearly think I could convince the majority, but okay. To, to vote you know, to a majority to, uh, to, to, to do a consumer boycott? 20% to do a consumer boycott? Again, I think if we look at the track record, it is easier. Well, I know you don't think it should be easier, but I think that what the facts show is that it is easier for majorities to work their will through the ballot box where people are brought together as citizens to engage in collective action rather than through consumer behavior where there are a great many more confounding factors in influencing individual decisions, even among people who by and large advocate the change in question. You I lack the, the courage of your conviction. shows that. I think the segregation example shows that. I think many other examples show You lack that. the courage of your convictions. Front you microphone. lack the courage of your convictions, or you would be confident that if democratic socialism turned out badly, you could convince a majority of your fellow voters to vote in an anti-socialist party again, and reverse again, it. Again, Ben, you are clearly, clearly... In Clearly infatuated with the tyranny of the majority. Front mic, go ahead. Gene, you addressed 
freedom and prosperity, but I don't think you address the equality issue. Yeah. Well, no, I only only address the equality issue in a political sense. Uh, I don't. I think that if Ben can't, ben, ben clearly would 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 cause an assault on freedom and prosperity, and uh, and that it, it and uh, one out of three is not should not convince anybody. But of course, as I said, even that one out of three is weak because the the, the political inequality that would necessarily result from from the the arrogation of government power over finance, over labor markets, all of that is is important as well. The word equality also means political equality and ben ben's system would clearly foster a greater widening of political equality exactly the opposite is true yeah exactly the opposite um <laughs> political equality is most meaningful when everybody has the same level of influence over government decisions that is ludicrously and on its face impossible in a society with extreme concentrations of wealth extreme concentrations of wealth always lead to extreme concentrations of political influence. A more egalitarian democratic society would necessarily be one with vastly more political equality. Ben has no interest in, uh, in, in rolling back the crony capital system. Indeed, he would tend to enhance it. I think that crony capitalism entails capitalism, obviously, <laughs> Not what I'm advocating. Microphone in the back. Hey, this is for Ben. Yeah, are you married to socialism or do you want the outcomes that you believe that they'll get to you? And, and I just want to provide a little bit of context. So a lot of socialists, they uh, kind of cite the Mercatus Institute study. And then Charles Blayhouse, he came out and he wrote a no. Uh, he kind of rejected what Bernie Sanders and the left had been saying. So what he found was uh, it's going to guarantee that everybody in America, rich or poor, it'll double your tax rate. And I'm pretty sure you're familiar with the Roman Romer study. So, you know, after 33%, you're actually losing GDP. That means that you're actually increasing poverty. So if you're having really bad outcomes by uh, the things that you're actually championing. So my questions are, um, I mean, obviously, we can even go into like the quality of it. You know, I know there's a bad WHO study, but my question is, if there are if your if your solutions are going to create more poverty, uh, worse outcomes, are you still married to that, or do you would you be okay with any solution that actually got you to the outcomes that you would like? So I'm not married to socialism. I'm married to Jennifer Burgess. Uh, so uh, just you know, for the record, uh, she'd uh, she'd be very upset if she watched this later and uh, and I didn't say that. Uh, but uh, but no, I think that I'm not married. To socialism, but I do believe, and I think I have a justifiable belief, that socialism is the best way to achieve meaningful political equality, as we just discussed, that socialism is the best way to achieve vastly greater material equality, that socialism is the best way to achieve democracy, uh, and, uh, you know, both at the uh, at the ballot box in a more meaningful way than we have it now, mm -hmm. at the workplace, and so I support uh, I support socialism. Uh, but if it turned out that I was I was dramatically wrong uh, on on all points, then obviously you know that would change things for me. I'd actually be very curious about Gene's response to a directly parallel question because whereas I'm sure that he would consider the antecedent as fantastically unlikely as I would consider the antecedent that capitalism could lead to better outcomes than socialism. But if Gene were convinced that 
that that he's just wrong in his empirical predictions that the sort of socialist system that I advocate, the Bosco advocates, etc., uh, actually would lead to uh, greater outcome, you know, better outcomes. Would he support it anyway, or is the bottom line, end of the day, reason that he supports capitalism in principle libertarian considerations about property rights? Uh, I guess um, I, I guess there are two answers to that question. Uh, one of them is, uh, you know, of course, if I'm proved wrong, I guess I uh, I'll have to acknowledge that I'm wrong. Uh, that should go without saying. I guess I just have to d give uh, Ben a, a slightly old fart answer as well. You know, I, I was raised in socialism. I, uh, I, I, I was a, a part of the Democratic Socialists of America, my teens. I was very active and interested in the worker ownership movement. I saw those people who, unlike Ben, were actually working to build worker ownership. Uh, and, uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and I recognize that that's the way you build something worth having. I saw the horrors of how government imposed socialism works, whether it comes through the ballot box or not. If it's elect, if, if it comes through, through election, it can still be tyranny. So I've been around the block with these things. And again, I can only say that I'm impatient with people who like Ben, who will tell me, well, consumer board boycotts, they historically don't work, but you rack the courage of your convictions. The, 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 the anger is supposed to be manifest out there. It was supposed to be manifest in the 1980s. We don't see any mandragons in the US. Maybe, maybe this is not something that people go for. And then maybe if you're going to ram it through the ballot box and ram it through government, it's going to end up uh, corrupt like the old socialisms. So that's my problem. My problem with wanting to get Ben to, to quit with cynical remarks about history has shown that consumer boycotts don't work or consumer actions don't work. But you are in the business of changing history. That's the tradition that I understood as part of the left-wing tradition that I inherited from my mother. But Ben is not interested in that. Much easier, much easier to think in terms of getting it voted in rather than thinking in terms of actively building a kibbutz, building Mondragon, doing it in terms of the actual grassroots way and showing that people really want it. That, and I was raised in the 60s and 70s. That's, that was the ethos of the time, which Ben has regrettably, tragically repudiated. So I would not recommend getting your impression of what I have or haven't done in my life uh, from, uh, from what Gene has managed to, uh, to glean uh, from, uh, from articles, what sorts of activism I may have been involved in, what I, I may have done to you, actually existed worker cooperatives like Red Emma's, the bookstore where I always tell people, ahem, uh, to uh, order my new book, uh, RedEmmas.org, you know, which is uh, you know, which is a worker uh, cooperative. Uh, I do take his point that Gene is much older than me, and so he can claim to have uh, have experience. Uh, but I take great comfort for the fact that I have met quite a few socialists Gene's age. Front microphone. Uh, so fifty years we have watched rise. Public employee unions, state, local, federal, uh, most of which the employees have little or no 
happy with this in terms of their compensation and the way they're treated. Oh, since World War II, the private enterprise companies, the unions have gone from approximately 40% down to now, where it's 7%, because they have a democratic system, they back away from unionization. Uh, yeah, I can't explain it, although I think that part of that explanation is that you're as wrong as wrong could be about the chain of cause and effect. Uh, so it's true that unionization is at an all-time low due to the success of uh, union-busted efforts, oftentimes involving economic blackmail. If you form a union, we'll shut down the plant. Uh, like the threats that were just used so effectively in Bessemer, Alabama, often involving actually shutting down and outsourcing uh, plants where employers could not, in fact, persuade people uh, not, uh, not to unionize, often involving every dirty trick in the book, much including uh, the crony capitalism that, uh, that Gene so deplores. But if you're interested in the empirical facts on the ground, the proportion of American workers who tell pollsters that they would want to join a union if they could vastly outstrips the portion who actually are members of unions. Last point about this, I always find it fascinating when people who are big defenders of capitalism and big critics of labor unions say that a closed shop means that people have lost their freedom of choice. The reason I find this fascinating is because in just this one instance, those people are rejecting their theory of what freedom is. That freedom is all about property rights. Freedom is all about freedom of contracts, uh, that it's, you know, you're not being forced to do something if you choose to accept a job where it's a condition. And just in this one case, they're temporarily adopting my theory of freedom by which if you're told that you can only get this job if you accept this condition, that's coercion, that's unfreedom. Uh, and I would say you can't have it both ways. Either people are, as Gene says, these 140 million people working as wage laborers, either they are freely accepting that, uh, or it's not the case, right? That either that they're accepting that employment contract means they're freely accepting whatever the conditions are of the employment contract when those conditions are giving up their power over their workplace, or people are not being free when they voluntarily accept a job at a closed shop and the condition is joining a union or at least paying an agency fee. But I have never understood how you could have it both ways. Notice, uh, just a brief comment, notice that even though uh, uh, Ben would uh, want a society in which worker ownership and control is an option, he still wouldn't trust people to voluntarily go for wage and salary employment. Second, again, every time I hear Ben talk about what workers want, they want unions, they want this, I always, and, or indeed, Ben talk about how he worked for this worker-owned enterprise, I always want to say, well then, 
go for it. The, the anger is out there. Uh, you, I'll, I'd be happy to consult. Uh, all you need, you, you, you've got 90, you've got 80% of the consumer dollar. You've got the power. Uh, the anger about totalitarian conditions is endemic. Look at Mondragon. How difficult could it be to do that? Indeed, all Ben then tells me is, well, history shows, well, consumer boycotts don't work. Well, that's an uninspiring example. For yes, it's much more inspiring to talk about what history shows does work. Well, it's well, history it should, as recently it should, it should be as Florida ben, last ben, November. Ben, ben, I don't think you've met, allowed me to finish. What what should be inspiring is for you to talk about the totalitarian conditions that workers are slaving under, the brutality, all of the rhetoric that you like to use then you would be addressing that 90% and they would be inspired by your word. I've got a way out. Consumer boycotts, we've got 30 trillion. That's the way out. That's the way to address them. That would be inspiring if you have the courage of your convictions. Gee, ben, if you would like to respond to this, please marriage? do so in the summation. Uh, we need to get some more questions uh, in the back. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Ben, you're really offended by income inequality, right? So, I want to touch specifically on that. So if we did what Gene said and rolled back crony capitalism and, and really had a true clean capitalism where, um, you know, the intersubjective wants of consumers are, are honored much more uh, and we had a radical increase in standards of living because of this, but still had income inequality, does that really matter? Is it just not envy at that point? I'm, I'm sorry, can you repeat the last part of the question? Yeah, so if we had a had much higher prosperity with clean capitalism, uh, but still had income inequality, does it really matter at that point? Why would, would you still be offended by okay. it? I got you. Thank you. Uh, so, yes, I, uh, I think that, first of all, of course, it goes without saying that I don't accept the hypothetical uh, that uh, the truly clean capitalism uh, would result in this greater prosperity. In fact, I think in the real life, in numerous ways, every successful market that's ever exist has been propped up by numerous forms of state intervention uh, that without state-backed currency, without limited liability corporations, without intellectual property protections, all sorts of things that many libertarians object to, uh, I think it's very unlikely that we would have a form of capitalism that was even close to the level of prosperity uh, that we uh, that we had right now. But even if I did accept uh, the premise, right? So it's an interesting thought experiment. Uh, if we had much less poverty, but we still had rampant in income inequality, uh, would that still be objectionable? Well, it's, it would certainly be less objectionable because one of the things that's wrong with income inequality uh, is that it results in uh, the coexistence of great wealth and great poverty and uh, redistribution could solve a lot of that. But that's not the only thing that's wrong with income inequality. Another thing that's wrong with income inequality is that it makes political equality ludicrously impossible uh, because concentrations of wealth in every country that's ever existed always lead to concentrations of political power. Sometimes Americans believe we can campaign finance and reform our way out of it. Not going to happen. Concentrated wealth always leads to concentrated political influence. Another thing that's wrong with economic inequality is that it gives some people much more power over others in workplaces. So yes, in the, I have to say, I find extremely unlikely hypothetical that you just gave me, uh, then, uh, then I would think 
that would remove one of my objections to income inequality, at least income inequality as extreme as we have. Uh, it certainly wouldn't reject. Uh, it certainly wouldn't um, would remove all of them. And I am very, very curious about how far Gene would actually want to go in removing the state from the economy and whether he really believes that really removing the state from the economy so we could have some libertarian vision of clean capitalism is going to lead uh, to more prosperity as opposed to realistically quite a bit less. Okay. Well, thank you for the question, Ben. Uh, uh, briefly, again, I, I don't know. I, 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 I didn't invite Paul Krugman. I invited you. Uh, with respect to that question, uh, it's, a, it's a big topic. Obviously, I do believe that under crony capitalism, the rich and powerful are, uh, are uh, supported. Uh, you even seem to believe in regulatory capture. You, su you suggested that. Uh, that clearly, if we weaken the state, if we go back to something like the vision of the founding fathers, we'd have much greater justice in this society because the state is used uh, to protect the powerful. That's the basic uh, nature of the state. You pass laws, you pass regulation, the, the powerful and the money and interest get interested. That's in my mind is just sort of basic political economy. The only thing I would say, however, uh, in terms of actually relating to the larger question, is that what Ben wants to do is foster a, 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 a dystopia of, gov of greater government power by giving government uh, power, basically overall financing, uh, all major allocation of labor. Uh, and uh, and it would not be, uh, even, even if it is the fantasy of democracy, clearly uh, Ben seems to not understand the difference between freedom and democracy. Uh, if 51% uh, if of the people vote to, on, on something that's absolutely anathema, uh, I could make something up, then clearly that's not freedom. 51% of the people vote to crush the freedom of the other 14%, 49%. That's not freedom. And I guess fundamentally, I guess that's where he and I are part company. Although I do say that it's a fantasy for him to think that there will be enough hours in the day for any of us to know what's going on with all, all of the government agencies that are deciding on where the money goes. We can rest assured that the Obamas of this world will make sure that the money does not go to any dissenters whom they don't like. And so, again, he's going to create a society that take a, will take us in all the, the, the uh, in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, I, I've said for the sake of the discussion, I'll defend our crony capital system, however corrupt it is, uh, against what he's proposing, because clearly what he's proposing would put freedom uh, under siege. Microphone in the front, front please. Uh, ben, you can address that in the summation. I, uh, my question is for Ben. First of all, main problem for coming from the crowd that probably the majority would disagree with you. I have to give credit for that. Um, I want to know what you would define as the means of production, because I am not part of the capitalist class as I think you would define it, and I don't think anybody else in this room is. Uh, but we all own things that I would consider to be the means of production, such as our computers, our instruments, our microphones, our phones. Yeah, means of production, and remember that's a that's an abbreviation, you know. Since we're obviously also interested in distribution, exchange, and so on, uh, is uh, is a term that refers to things like factories, farms, grocery stores, workplaces. Right? It refers to workplaces. Now, of course. 
uh, socialists have always thought, going back to um, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in 1848, writing before the term capitalism was even, even been formulated by Louis Blanc, uh, that personal property is something that people have real rights to, uh, that they that property that's uh, that's primarily for personal use uh, is is something that should be relatively sacrosanct. We can come up with exceptions, uh, you know, philosopher kind of edge cases, you know, but more or less. Uh, now, is there going to be a blurry line uh, between personal property and uh, and property in what would usually be considered the means of production? Are there going to be gray areas? Yeah, of course there are. But we don't want to make the mistaken logical leap from the existence of gray areas between categories to the conclusion that the distinction between the categories doesn't exist or isn't important. You could start out with uh, the you know gentleman there a few rows up, his head his head. Uh, I'd say okay, he's bald. Uh, we add a hair to his head. Yeah, he's still bald. We add a hair to his head. He's still bald. We add it until he looks like Fabio. Uh, and at some point, of course, he has crossed the threshold from being bald to uh, to not being bald. Uh, good luck pinning down exactly how many hairs have to be on his head for that threshold to be crossed. But we all think that that threshold exists. I think when it comes to laws and regulations, uh, there are numerous real-world examples of distinctions, you know, being made in practice about numbers of employees and so on. Those distinctions are necessarily imperfect given the nature of human institutions, uh, but I think that they can be drawn in ways that are, if not perfect, at least reasonable. Microphone uh, building, in the back. Building on, building on Ben's uh, response, I would only, again, urge him to recognize uh, that private ownership, the right to private ownership of the means of production, by the way, be it whether you're constructing your firm as a worker-owned firm or wage and salary firm or whatever, the right to that private ownership is essential to freedom because if you give the government any power over that scarce resource, uh, then they have every excuse uh, to, uh, to allocate in ways that interest them. That's why we want 100 flowers to bloom. That's why we want not only uh, crowdfunding, why we want investment capital, why we want to end the dominance of the Federal Reserve over banking. We, we, want, uh, we, we want as many possible avenues whereby people can pursue whatever they want, whether it be it creating a deli or a hot dog stand or a printing press or Jacobin magazine. That's essentially the importance of free market capitalism because capital is a scarce resource. And uh, if you give the government the power to allocate that scarce resource, uh, then that way lies totalitarianism. Microphone in the back. All right. This is for Ben. Um, fairly, I have a pretty good uh, example with me. I have a small business. I breed cats. Um, but me and my wife have been doing it for a long time. Uh, it's not a, money, a job that we make a ton of money at, but let's say, for example, my neighbor decided he has a few extra hours in his day. One of the major parts of my job is to spend two to three hours a day cleaning the cat room because it's important to make sure they have a clean environment. Let's say they, de they decide to do it. I don't make enough money to be able to pay them above minimum wage. And also in your, in your I mean, not to assume entirely, what you, I would assume you're in your society that that wage and salary wouldn't be amenable. There'd be some rules around it. Let's say just between us, we make some sort of agreement. What should happen to me? What would actually happen to you if you decided to make an agreement 
where you're paid less than the minimum wage or where you violated numerous other labor laws. What should happen to you if you're a libertarian who believes very strongly in property rights? Uh, if you own a vacant building and, uh, and, and people squatted that, right? What should happen to them? I think in all of these cases, uh, we can recognize that there are ways of enforcing laws that don't involve massive rampant uh, imprisonment. I think that uh, I think that focus, you know, that we could have very lenient enforcement. We could have fines. Uh, we could, uh, you know, we could have we could focus on restorative justice. And I think that's what you would say about enforcing the laws that you like as somebody who believes in uh, very strongly in property rights. So, for example, wants to use the power of the law to stop those squatters. I think that that's what I would say about uh, enforcing you know, laws mandating worker ownership. And I think that's what everybody would say about, not everybody, but everybody else would say about minimum wage laws, sexual harassment laws, and every other labor regulation. Not Microphone hug, in the front. Uh, not to hog the mic, if you don't mind, what, what if I decide not to pay those fines? What would happen? I'm sorry, what if? What if I decided not to pay those fines? What would you think should happen? Yeah. And again, what if those squatters don't pay those fines, right? What if people who violate any number of laws that you advocate don't pay those fines? Of course, if we live in a society that still has imprisonment as a punishment of last resort, you can come up with scenarios whereby somebody would eventually be imprisoned after every other avenue has run out because uh, they were squatted because uh, they didn't use their turn signal and they refused to pay uh, the uh, they refused to pay the fine uh, for getting pulled over for not using their turn signal, etc. So all of these, anytime you have a law, sure you can come up with scenarios where that last resort is used. But I think if we're going to be realistic about it, the vast majority of the time, all of these laws are enforced without that, and this objection cuts both ways, to the laws you want to protect your property rights, to the laws that I want to enforce fairness and democracy in the workplace. I think Ben, again, when he talks about uh, outlawing wage and salary employment, does not appreciate the quantitative magnitude of what he's proposing, 140 million workers, uh, Tens and th tens and tens of thousands of firms. Uh, the what what with, with respect to uh, sec uh, sexual harassment and minimum wage laws, it's numerically quite minor and very different. It's numerically take, quite minor because finish, we have those ben, laws. Ben, wasn't quite, it wasn't numerically ben, ben, quite minor ben, before ben, those ben, laws. Give him a chance to respond. Ben, you're not allowing me to finish. Uh, it, he doesn't appreciate the the potential for the for the vast amount of, of anger that he would be engendering by imposing that kind of draconian requirement that that people can't get a, a decent wage and salary job. Uh, because he doesn't think that this is the sort of thing that they should do with their lives. That kind of arrogant attitude toward the way people should live their lives could engender anger on the part of the 140 million people who do it all the time. So he's taking a, he's really playing with fire when he proposes that. And his analogies don't hold up. He likes history. Historically, those analogies are minor compared to what he wants to take on in terms of the law. There might be disanalogies. We certainly haven't heard them yet, despite repeated challenges. 
Uh, and the draconian thing being imposed on those workers is that they are allowed, if they choose, to participate in elections at the workplace. That's it. If, if Gene thinks that most people hate being permitted to vote if they want to so much that there would be somehow, even though this was passed democratically, there would be mass resistance to this. I have not yet tonight heard a reason I, I to got, take that seriously. Ben, Gene, Gene please respond to this point. in the summation. I can vote in my co-op. I don't want to live on, there. Hold on, Gene. I, I thought you were Gene, just told it. You respond to this in the summation. I'm sorry, what? Respond to this in the summation. Well, we'll have one more question. Uh, okay. Microphone in the front, please. Uh, the question is from Ben. Uh, is your form of democratic socialism immune to the higher-cost oligarchies? And if not, why should I be comfortable with uh, handing the means of production I need my food? You're not handing it over to a small group of elites. You are dramatically reducing the power of elites. Right now, in the society that we live in, the means of production are to a great extent under the control of a genuinely small group of elites. What we're talking about is extended control to the workforce. Uh, I know, of course, that we're told that workers don't really want that, that even if a majority of them voted for it in elections, they wouldn't really want it because if they really wanted it, uh, then they would engage in the consumer tactics that Gene wants. Uh, I would say that all of the historical examples that have been discussed show that those things quite frequently come apart, that a majority uh, wants something uh, even though and will vote for it, will tell pollsters they want it. For some reason, the union example, he doesn't take polling data seriously, uh, even though they're not willing to engage in the tactics uh, that he's willing to engage in. I think all institutions are, uh, are corrupt. I, I think that human beings are often going to be cruel and capricious and exercise their power in institutions. That is why I'm a democratic socialist because I want to limit the power that any person has over another person, because to the extent that you're worried that given too much of a power imbalance between any two people, one of them is going to treat the other one like a little boy with a spider trapped in the jar, that is a reason to want a relatively equal distribution of power, which you get by extending democracy to the workplace. Thank you very much. With that being said, we now move on to the concluding portion. Ben, please take the stage. You have seven and a half minutes. Yeah, uh, so I want to start out by making the point about uh, coverture that, you know, I, this is not a slam on the moderator. I know it's a thankless task uh, to, uh, to try to, uh, to hurt these cats and to, uh, and to get everything within the format, but uh, that, that, you know, due to the time limits, you know, I wasn't able to get around earlier because when we're talking about the end of coverture marriage, uh, which happened due to state action to reform the institution of marriage. You can imagine every single rhetorical technique that my friend Gene has used tonight being used by someone saying, hey, if coverture marriage, where many of the legal rights and obligations of a married woman were subsumed by her husband, if this were as oppressive as you say it is, Ben, if this were as bad for women as you say it is, then why do women still agree to get married? Can't be that bad. Uh, why can't you just convince them to mass boycott the institution of marriage and do it that way? But of course, it didn't happen that way. Of course, it happened through state action. You could say with civil rights, well, 
If it's the case that Jim Crow segregation is really as bad for black people as you say it is, there should be so much anger. So why is it that you, uh, that you aren't getting black people refusing to buy every product uh, made by a, uh, an employer that use segregation? And of course, so they aren't doing that, so they must not really mind that much. Of course, most people in most circumstances who are in miserable conditions accept those conditions most of the time. They can be persuaded democratically to enact democratic change. And the fact that that is a more realistic route for making that happen, to me, is not cynical. Gene will refer to any, uh, to any empirical observation that he dislikes as being cynical. To me, it's not cynical. It's incredibly inspiring. Because what it allows us to do is to focus on what has been shown time and time again to be effective and to focus on using those more effective tactics. That's a good thing. Now, I want to go back to uh, the five minutes of uh, that we started out with. Right. So I want to think about the proposition. And I want you to think about whether anything that Gene has said tonight has actually undermined the case for that proposition. Because there are three elements, um, freedom, equality, and prosperity. On one of them, equality, we heard a concession. Sure, it would be more equal, but one out of three shouldn't be enough. There's still the other two. That leaves prosperity and freedom. Well, on prosperity, Gene, I've got to say, spent about 30 seconds gesturing in the direction of some sort of prosperity-based objection. I don't really know what that is because we haven't heard enough about it, uh, but, uh, but certainly not very much. He thinks that it's impossible, I guess, that you could have publicly owned banks like actual state development banks that have worked very effectively in the real world uh, where people uh, function as officers of those banks, like relatively efficient apolitical technocrats uh, being promoted through the civil service on the basis of objective criteria, uh, like pay, you know, picking winners. Uh, I guess he must think that that's impossible. Uh, I don't know why he thinks that's impossible. He hasn't really told us. So the real question, I think, separating us is not equality, where Gene and I seem to disagree. It's not prosperity, where I don't think that Gene has made his counter case. It's freedom. That's the real issue, is freedom. So let's talk about freedom. If we define freedom the way that he wants to, that libertarians define it, right? Freedom is not interference with your property. Well, what's your property? We know it can't be property that you're legally entitled to because then legally mandated redistribution and even legally mandated nationalization would be fine. It can't be property that you're currently in possession of because then that would mean that you couldn't even recover stolen property. It could only be property that you have a moral right to. And at that point, it's just a tautology. You have a moral right to that property, which you have a moral right to. 
So the question is, which property do you have a moral right to? It's possible that the best answer to that question, I suppose, is the libertarian one, that you have a moral right to whatever property you happen to accumulate by observing the rules of a market system. That's the only relevant criteria. But all I could say is that if you think that that's a more plausible theory than a theory that emphasizes regular human values like solidarity and compassion and fairness and giving everybody a reasonable shot Two minutes. at good life outcomes, that all of your work is ahead of you. Final thought. Uh, I read a while back that in 1971, Noam Chomsky debated the French philosopher Michel Foucault and that uh, Foucault insisted on being paid in hash for a long time afterwards, or I don't know how long it took them to smoke it all. Every time they broke it out, he and his friends would delight in saying, we're going to smoke some of the Chomsky hash. Now, as a good statist, I haven't been paid for my honorarium tonight in, in some sort of barter system. I'm accepting payment in good old-fashioned government-backed fiat currency. Uh, but I'll certainly spend some of it on a nice uh, smoky bottle of scotch. One minute. And I'm not going to call it the, uh, the Epstein whiskey because my friend Gene is unfortunately not currently the world's most famous Epstein. But I'll say, <laughs> perhaps, would you like, to my friends, would you like a glass of the Soho Forum whiskey? So that's what I'll be left with. And I'll be all appreciate it. What I want you to leave, leave you this, leave all of you with is this. If we define freedom the way libertarians want to define freedom, I've argued that that's circular. I haven't heard a response to that argument. 30 seconds. If you define freedom the way that I define freedom, then this could be a problem if for some reason you think that abuse and bigotry is going to be a much bigger problem in state banks than it currently is in real world liquor boards and zoning boards. We haven't heard that case yet. But the more important point is that if you're defining freedom the way that I want to define freedom as freedom in practice to live your life the way you want, then that means that capitalist employment contracts are unfree. Thank you, Ben. Gene, you have seven and a half minutes. Well, I mean, in terms of the actual uh, uh, implementation of his plans, perhaps um, the uh, the most telling contradiction that Ben uh, lives with is that he's a big advocate of Mondragon, and yet Mondragon was created uh, by the workers themselves without any government help. But so uh, Mondragon's very inspiring. It was inspiring to, to us all in the 1980s, and yet, and yet we see no uh, uh, companies on the scale of Mondragon in the U.S., and Mondragon was created in a much poorer country. So Ben says, well, don't go the way of Mondragon. After all, they, they're, they're successful, and they built it up through tradition. Don't go the way of the kibbutzes, because they were successful. They built it up through tradition. Uh, you you want to go the way of the ballot box. And he draws analogies with the institution of marriage and with segregation. Well, both of those issues, having to do with the Jim Crow's laws, <laughs> 
having to do with the laws of marriage. They were very much bound up with the state. And what I'm trying to show, and I guess Ben has mostly agreed because he initially said that capitalism necessarily means that that there were capitalists and then there were workers. Uh, what it, what, uh, what uh, I've tried to show is that clearly capitalism has a whole range of possibilities and that if there is indeed a groundswell of feeling about it, then capitalism offers the way, and and that Ben's analogies are not valid. Uh, there should be a hunger for the sort of thing that he's talking about, and the power of the consumer dollar, the power of uh, of of the thirty trillion of of wealth that workers have, should be more than enough to bring that about. And I do suggest that uh, that Ben doesn't want to advocate it partly because it's a little bit ugly to use capitalist means it's it's conceding too much to imagine that you can that you can achieve these things through capitalist means and finally it also tends to imply that maybe people aren't interested and again i'm appalled when ben says well they're all that you can't reach them because you know boycotts are so uh, so lacking in focus well that don't have to be lacking in focus if you say this is the purpose we're going to target this firm or indeed we're going to build worker-owned firms and we five want minutes, a commitment Gene, from five you minutes five minutes we want a commitment from you to build it all of those things are quite obviously possible through capitalist means and again mandragon is in itself a refutation of ben's view I guess Ben felt I didn't clarify prosperity enough. Uh, I, I guess when I mentioned Steve Jobs, uh, perhaps uh, that was what I meant to imply. Take take uh, take uh, three innovators: Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, Sam Walton. Uh, we we don't know. Uh, ben Ben seems to think that state-run banks are going to be the ones who are going to recognize what's good and what's bad. Well, these three were pretty much uh, self-financing. They came out of nowhere. The fact of the matter is, and that's the reason why so many of the innovative firms are still in the U.S. and why when you have domination by government, you don't get a whole lot of innovation. Innovation is a very difficult and precious thing. And to glibly say that, that's, that the state-run banks are going to do it. They'll they'll sock up all the capital. You'll of course we'll give you a little bit of a GoFundMe, but otherwise they'll sock up all the capital. We're not really going to get very far with prosperity uh, because we're going to choke off innovation. Uh, finally, again, I don't even concede. I don't know whether there would be greater equality of income under Ben's socialism. It, it could go either way. I do know that there would be un, uh, injustice, stagnation. I, I do know that, that if Ben wants to do all of these unprecedented things, then he ought to recognize that, that, that the legacy of socialism is pretty appalling, that, that we're, where we can do direct comparisons, North Korea versus South Korea, uh, 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 East Germany versus West Germany, we get pretty dismal results, uh, even when we're talking about imperfect capitalism. And therefore, uh, I think that it even behooves Ben, just given his respect for history, to recognize that that you want to work in the grassroots, you want to prove that these systems are possible. The kibbutzim have failed. Uh, the, 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 to the extent that we've got anything going on, it's, it's, it's become very difficult to believe that any of these dreams are worth, uh, are, are worth sustaining. And so, uh, 
what Ben really ought to do is roll up his sleeves and go back to, to all that misery that's out there and use the numbers that I told him about, uh, the, the, the control that they have over the consumer dollar, the control that they have over wealth, and use capitalist means and recognizing again that institutional marriage segregation is not the way to go. Also recognizing that what people vote for in the ballot box, uh, you know, again, I, we, 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 uh, lots of people voted for Biden, lots of people voted for Bush. You don't always know what you're getting. It's, it's rather, it's not exactly the way to go, especially when capitalism offers the way. Uh, and, Two minutes. Uh, and so I think it's tragic that Ben doesn't see that. I guess the final thing in terms of my notes is that Ben seems to think that, uh, that if I'm working for a worker-owned firm and I'm unhappy, I can always vote. I can always try to persuade or, or some, the people in that co-op, uh, the, the error of their ways. Uh, but I'm, well, one thing that's just not open to me is to opt out. The freedom to opt out, which is what capitalism offers as such a sacred right. You know, I, 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 I live in a co-op building. I can vote. You know, my God, bang, yeah, if I can vote, what am I got to complain? Well, they, there are some lunatics running it. I'd rather, I'm, I, 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 my options are limited, so I can't move. Uh, but the point is that what Penn seems to think is that all you got to do is vote, all you got to do is leave it to the majority, and that will solve all. That's a, that from the standpoint of, of, of the free market, from the standpoint of libertarianism, is a very bankrupt philosophy. Majoritarian fascism is not exactly a new concept. Uh, the, the, even if we did indeed have majorities running things, the idea that they could tyrannize the minority or, or that all you got to do is vote, all you got to do is push through your, uh, your plans to the ballot box, rather than using the magic of the market to, to go your own way, to do your own thing, to prove as Jobs did, as Bezos did, as Walton did, that there are better ways of doing things and show the majority of the population be damned, to quote Conor Friedersdorf. So therefore, I do believe you should vote against the resolution that Ben has been defending. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, let's give uh, one more big round of applause for our speakers. Do, um so uh, what I got out of that, uh, you know, I, I have the advantage of, of having experienced this three times because I was there and I uh, listened to it as a podcast uh, when uh, Soho Forum first put it out. And then uh, and then I, um, you know, I just watched it just now or I was wandering around for part of it, but I had my headphones on. Um, and uh, and one thing I really got out of that is that, uh, that the co-op apartment where she lives is really bad. There's some lunatics there. It's that management, you know, that's, uh, you know, coughs won't work because Gene's apartment managers suck. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot of highlights in this, though. Uh, I especially like the, you know, sometimes when you do a debate, you do a business casual. Uh, I liked in this debate that you did like casual casual. That was very, don't you know, it's an older audience. They love it when you dress up, when you come to visit. I think I think we could have got a few people there. Uh, with a blazer, you always rock a blazer. You know that. Yeah, no, that's true. It was, uh, it was, it was pretty hot. It was in, uh, it was in Florida, but, um, but yeah, that was that was my. Um, I was wearing my uh, DSA uh, abolish ice shirt. 
but uh, but yeah, I, I could have uh, I could have spruced it up and put a blazer over it. Didn't uh, want to dress like this guy, <laughs> bow tie and everything, uh, rocking that southern lawyer look. That's a, a strong a strong choice, and I will say just real fast as a side note, this guy is from the Libertas Institute, right? I did look that up. That's the entity run uh, in part by Connor Boyack, who wrote the Tuttle Twins book series that I had to read for current affairs one time and wrote a somewhat unfavorable article about the folks can look up. So this, this institution has a little extra infamy as a footnote there. Yeah, we should, um, yeah, we should do a, we should do a segment sometime on the Tuttle Twins, but. Oh yeah. Um, yeah there's a lot there. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I, I will, uh, I will say, and then I'll, and then I'll shut up and, uh, and put it over to you two since people have been hearing me talk for the last two hours. But, uh, I, uh, I think, um, you know, the two things I will say that I, I, I really didn't have a chance to, uh, to correct in the debate itself, uh, since so much else was going on, uh, that, uh, that I did find a little frustrating, uh, were uh, this business about poverty wages. Uh, obviously, I wasn't claiming that every single worker in the United States paid poverty wage. That would be ridiculous. Um, what a where he's getting that is a uh, is is I think a uh, article that I wrote a couple of years ago um, where I was I was talking about uh, the competitive advantages uh, that in in regular capitalist markets. Um, you know, traditional hierarchical firms have over co-ops. And one of those competitive advantages I said is that, uh, is that one of the strategies available to regular hierarchical firms is to uh, pay people poverty wages to free up more funds for, you know, for new development, which I, I think is just uncontroversially true that that is something that companies sometimes do. Uh, the claim is obviously not that like every single, you know, employee in the United States is, uh, is being paid uh, poverty wages. And, and similarly, I think one thing I did find a little frustrating was uh, there was a uh, Jacobin article that I wrote uh, several months back about uh, like tech company, you know, deplatforming, which had that article that uh, line in it with the, uh, that he was quoting about the heart of democratic socialism uh, being about recognizing the private sector authoritarianism, you know, can be just as much of a threat to freedom as uh, what the state does. And I, I mean, like, I mean, whatever. I like Gene. I have a soft spot for, you know, a certain kind of old Jewish man from New York. You know, Gene is of that type. Bernie Sanders is of that type, despite the vast political differences between them. <laughs> uh, my grandma was a little bit of a female version of that and her sister much more so. Uh, so, you know, I, I've got a, I've got a soft spot for that. But um, so no, uh, no shade on Gene as a person. But uh, I, I think that that kind of a farcically uncharitable interpretation of that sentence uh I'm, I'm not like come on i the the point is not that like the worst things that the state can do to you are no worse than what like a private company can can legally do to you that's not what it means to say that one of them is as much of a threat as the other uh the point is that most of us most of the time are not actually walking around terribly concerned that we're going to be thrown in prison or executed uh, the uh, you know most of us most of the time uh, the things that most limit our ability to to do what we want you know with with our time uh, in a capitalist society are the uh, decisions of, of of private companies and I, I think I, yeah I, I think it should be kind of clear that that's what that meant. 
Yeah, you know, and a little bit of that is, yeah, that natural debate, political media thing. You want to give people the least charitable version of the other side. But I have to say, I, th- I think it's great that you, Ben, have a you have like a, a charitable disposition toward uh, Mr. Epstein because I was getting really annoyed by him by the end. So I'm glad that you like him because I want to say shitty things about him. So uh, that'll be a good a good balance there. Uh, I think it was great, like as you were just saying, that like a lot of this discussion really focused on the issue of power and who has it, because that's such a like fundamental, pivotal difference in like how we view this whole set of issues versus the right. And you know, he was very standard in that way. Of course, you know, uh, viewers will have seen this many times from the conservative and libertarian guests on the show. Anytime this government does something or takes over a new function or a new you know, regulatory thing. Uh, it's, oh, here's the iron, the blood-soaked iron fist of genocide of the state. Like the hilariously uh, caricatured picture of public regulations and the role they play in society. And then when it's private property, like there just is no power there. And maybe one criticism I would just say in style in this is I feel like people, it's easy to not, people really need to recognize the power you get in large-scale private property and capital, like, since that's such a big issue for us. Uh So, you know, uh, anything that really crystallizes that for people, you know, oil refineries and the internet cables and the data centers and the ports that goods come on, like, that's the, all of our asses are on the line with this stuff. It just means there's power, there's influence there, there's a lever of social control, just like there is in other institutions with power. But that's what they always want to run from. And that was very clear here, you know, like, again, you brought up the issue, which is a great one of, you know, when he when he gets on his libertarian high horse and says, how dare you put new laws on my behavior? How dare you tell me what I can and can't do in my contracts of dealings with people? He said that was one of the darker parts of your vision. That's what he said. That's one of your darker views, Ben. And that really is a dark moment for your friends. We all saw the darkness in your face in that moment and in your heart. Of course, what's ludicrous about that is, as you said, like anytime we make, you know, when we abolish slavery, when we make laws against sexual harassment and so on, like that's all interfering with your private partnerships. And I thought that conclusion was extra strong talking about those uh, marriage laws, which I never even heard of. That was very instructive for me. Uh, like perfect. Like those are, you know, very intimately invasive kind of issues. But we do those because they give us like that's how we make these steps forward. You make Jim Crow policies illegal and you require people to wear freaking seatbelts. And the right will always say, Oh, how are they going to enforce this law that says my son has to get a license just to drive our giant SUV? They're gonna do it by giving your child the electric chair. Like, no, they won't. Like that's not the case it is a republic like laws have to sort of conform to public uh, broad desires at least a little bit but running from that issue that you raised of sexual harassment like he said on stage specifically it's like i don't want to go down that road of whether it's it's good that the government makes it illegal for your boss to make it a condition of employment that they fill you up every day like i don't want to go down that road yeah i bet you don't mr epstein because it's a, like dagger in the heart of your argument uh my friend ashley mccray who's a, a contributing editor at current affairs she always calls that moment when you debate a libertarian and you say well you believe in freedom of contract and no big government so is it okay if i tell my workers if they get pregnant they're fired right because often debaters conservatives will sort of pause there and go uh and she calls that the pregnant pause I think it's very funny. She's she's hilarious. But that's like, he just filled his pregnant pause up by openly evading the question, which is a move I 
have not witnessed. So it brought out new acrobatics I hadn't seen before myself from conservatives to avoid that key issue of power in the marketplace and the private sector. So I thought this was a good, a very stimulating debate because it got right at the key issues and showed, I mean, you made them, you made them openly run from the core subject. Like that's yeah, well done. Also, you know, that was, that was nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. He also, um, uh, he also never said whether he thought there should be minimum wage laws or not. Um, Evasion. You know, like he, uh, like he said, um, like his his big uh, his big disanalogy was that uh, was that minimum wage laws and allegedly sexual harassment laws affect fewer people, uh, but of course, one, um, you know, minimum wage laws. Uh, I mean, oftentimes this is really exaggerated. You know that, like, oh, look at this tiny percentage of people who are making minimum wage. Of course. Uh, remember that anybody, if you started out at minimum wage, uh, if uh, if you get a ten cent increase after six months, you're no longer counted in the uh, in the in the percentage of people who are making the minimum wage. And certainly, with a lot of laws that are being passed now to raise the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour in different states, twenty eight percent of the American workforce makes less than than fifteen dollars an hour. Um, and uh, and certainly with sexual harassment, I mean, my God, I, I, I think that uh, I think that the better question would be uh, how many young women who had jobs before there were sexual harassment laws weren't sexually harassed at work. Uh, you know, considering that it's it's still a you know depressingly fun, a fun, common phenomenon, but certainly vastly less than it was you know back before such laws uh, existed. Uh, and yeah, the, the coverture thing. Um, so that was a little bit of a gradual change historically, but like in the 19th century, certainly that was like, you know, that was just the way it was that there were a bunch of like uh, legal rights, you know, in, in various economic domains that married women didn't have because they were subsumed by their husbands, uh, you know, things they couldn't do without their husband's permission. Uh, and that's that sort of court sort of gradually got away from that uh, over, uh, over, over time, but there were still like, there were still bits and pieces of that doctrine that weren't like completely eliminated until like the 1970s. I mean, it's, it's pretty recent, you know, that that was, and there's still actually like some States where there are some lingering shreds of that, uh, that, uh, that like, like, I think there are a couple States that sounds like a joke, but it's not, uh, there are a couple of States, I believe where, uh, a, uh, where like a, a, a defense that, that's like, uh, that can be accepted in court, uh, you know, for, uh, you know, like is, uh, is, oh, you know, it's not my fault. You know, my, my husband told me to do it, uh, you know, in, uh, in certain kinds of criminal cases. So, uh, so it's, it's still, I think that's like the last little shred of that that's still left, you know, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly, um, and yeah, his, his big claim there. So the two differences I heard uh, that, you know, so he never said whether he thinks there should be minimum wage laws or whether there should be sexual harassment laws. Uh, which which would have been the more interesting question. Uh, and then he also uh, his big disanalogy uh, was that they have, was that these laws allegedly uh, affect so many fewer people. Uh, but uh, I mean, it's certainly I mean, he's certainly right. It's a more radical change. I mean, obviously, these are like, you know, these are like incremental reforms within capitalism, you know, going to socialism, you know, would be much more radical, no doubt about that. But uh, but he didn't. Uh, but yeah, he, he didn't really explain how it is, right. That it's like, okay, like that we managed to enforce all of these things, uh, without, uh, without rampant, uh, without rampant imprisonment. I mean, like it's, it's fine. Like whatever the percentage of people you think some law affects that, you know, who, 
who would be who you think would be paying you know minimum wage less than minimum wage outside of minimum wage laws i mean how many people do you think go to prison over that nobody goes to prison over that like you, you like you probably like if you're um i mean i'm fairly certain that right now uh if there's some you know if uh, if there's some regulatory body that you know that catches you uh you know paying you know paying people illegally you know low wages you uh you probably get a very stern letter and you know like have to uh you know half you know like maybe there might be some legal arrangement we have to pay back wages or something and nobody's uh nobody like nobody's going to prison over that certainly not over the first offense yeah i'm pretty sure fines still exist like i think that that remains a possible civil sanction short of trucking you off to joseph stalin's gulag which is what will happen if this seatbelt law goes through I mean, even even like the pro acts, like which would um, you know give workers a lot more power in these situations. Like the fines are still only um, well, like fifty thousand dollars if they catch you doing things that violate workers' rights. Like for for like a massive corporation, and and they're pushing back against it pretty hard. Like I mean, we read that whole thing about uh, the Chamber of Commerce coming out against the the the, the pro act, but like I I I think that um I don't know even even the uh, yeah. So, um, oh, also, actually, Rob, I, I think that the um, uh, something that that uh, that I, I thought was kind of funny makes um, I mean, I, I guess makes me wish uh, you, you'd, you'd been there, you know, since uh, you know, uh, you have uh, you know, like Gene, you have a graduate degree in economics, uh, is uh, the point where um, you know, he was going on and on about okay, you know, if we have like real good pure capitalism. Uh, then, then we, then everything will be much better, uh, you know. But he still wants to take credit for all of the material prosperity caused by actually existing capitalism. Uh, so I asked him, "Well, hold on, though, right? Like, doesn't the state prop up existing markets in in numerous ways? I mean, like the, uh, I mean, I think I just gave rattled off a couple of the most obvious examples, like government-backed currency, without which there hasn't been a, a flourishing market anywhere ever." Uh, uh, like, um, you know, intellectual property protections, you know, that, that provide, you know, incentives, you know, for, uh, for various, you know, various forms of, of innovation. I mean, I'm not saying I like or don't like any of these things, but just as a factual issue, you know, like these are, these are some pretty powerful forms of state intervention to encourage market activity uh, that, uh, that, that we already have. And, uh, and when I pointed, when I asked him if he actually really thought, that markets would work as well without all of these things. Uh, he, uh, he said, well, you know, I, I could have, you know, invited Paul Krugman, you know, if, if, if I'd, if I'd wanted to argue about that, which didn't really get that at all. Again, again, evading the difficult arguments though. Um, but at least like openly doing it, at least I appreciate that, you know, because yeah, it's so much evasion and that, yeah, that whole issue there, it's like, it's, is it crony capitalism or are they innovators? And like the, he did, Man, that's exactly right. Like he had it both ways in that, you know. There's, he said, a very flawed version of capitalism because it's crony capitalism, and that's bad. But then it's well, Bezos, Zuck, you know, Zucker, uh, 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 Phil Walton, Sam Walton. That was the other one. It's yeah. like they're innovators, and they created all these new industries. That's my whole point. You know, like it's not just crony capitalism. I mean, that's very real. Like industries, there are industries that are dominated by state interference. It's especially common in the developing world where countries have never recovered from the era of colonialism, where we put in government-sponsored monopolies to you know, organize the efficient rape of those countries' economic resources for centuries on end. And then we walk around and go, why can't these poor people get it together? They're shithole countries, I guess. They just never 
They just drop the ball constantly. We have no history there. Uh, so that's very embarrassing. The crony capitalism you know, runs Egypt and you know, many other countries as well. Like it's very common. We need to recognize like figures like he mentioned, you know, Jobs and Gates and Walton and Jeff Bezos. Like those people just come from the market. They're hugely powerful figures from the market. Like they come from economies of scale and network effects and all the dumb things I write about in my critical economics books. Like these people come from the marketplace. You can become huge. That's the thing about that private capital. Like if you talk about how much influence you have over an area, if you run its you know, logistics centers and its Amazon and Walmart warehouses, if you decide to shut them all down, like we're going to notice when we can't buy food and paper goods anymore. Uh, it means you have power in the economy and you can't put it all on. It's crony capitalism and the Federal Reserve. That's why banks are big. Yes, yeah, yeah. you don't know any history. I'll get away with that. Like these are embarrassing arguments. And I want to talk more about what he kept accusing you of. But this guy is just like intellectually unserious. Like this is just you're embarrassing yourself. Well, crony capitalism the record this bad is, is the dodge that they always use. Like anything bad that happens in capitalism is crony capitalism. Anything good that happens in in, in capitalism is like market capitalism, the, the kind that they like. Like, so, I mean, I've, I've had tons of like libertarian friends that have tried to make that argument to me. And I, it's funny that those arguments don't really like evolve that much through like, like even if it's like someone like Gene Epstein, who's like one of their premier, I guess, debating, uh, you know, figures. Yeah. I mean, I would, Absolutely. I would argue that the idea that we can have like uh, massive concentrations of wealth uh, without uh, the, um, you know the the without the wealthy uh, coming up with ways to uh, rig the political rules on their behalf is 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 fairly unrealistic. I mean, like that's 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 kind of like saying, you know, that we're going to have, um, you know, like okay, you know, we're going to give these people this gun, but you know, but but they're just not going to fire it. You know, like like I they, they will come up with ways to rig the rules on their behalf. The you know you want to avoid that. You have to do something about the concentrations. Uh, the concentrations of, uh, of of wealth, you know, and and, and again, I, I just don't um, buy this idea that it's like, you know, that uh, there's there's often this kind of suggestion that, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, there's often this kind of suggestion uh, that uh, that capitalist property relations are are like this this thing that like there's this. Uh, like some kind of wildflower that's just going to grow everywhere unless you, you know, unless you stamp it out. Uh, and it, it, that just doesn't seem real to me. I, it's, it seems like, uh, you know, historically, I think, yeah, I mean, limited liability companies, you know, like that's the, uh, that's, that seems like a massive uh, way that the, uh, that the state intervenes in order to, uh, to enable, uh, to enable market activity. So people will take, you know, entrepreneurial risk without worrying that they're going to get sued for everything, you know, that the, uh, uh, that the company uh, that the company does. I mean, all of these things are uh, are propped up, uh, you know, by the state. And you know, I'm not. I think the I think the best case libertarian answer to what would markets be like? Well, you know, if there was nothing, if there's no state activity to prop it up, is we don't really know. But you know, we have uh, you know, we certainly have no particular reason to think that like uh, that you would be have as many companies uh, that were you know, taking as many risks without these legal protections that we're spending as much money on R and D without intellectual property protections, uh, you know, like that we're, uh, that we're just doing exchange at all without some sort of government backed, uh, you know, government backed unit, uh, unit of exchange. I mean, that's, that's, that's just so, 
yeah, that's that's that that just that just seems like uh, that just seems deeply weird to me. I mean, of course, any market is going to have you know government uh, you know propping it up and writing the rules, and you know, and, and it seems like the real the real question is what we want those rules to be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of an amazing picture that these guys have of state action. Like state action is the government locking you up because we made it illegal to, you know, fire you at will, uh, unlike in the European labor markets or something. Like that's what the state is. Of course, the reality is it's it's hugely multi-layered. Like yeah, the state provides that whole foundation for markets and commerce in the first place. Yeah, the currency is a great example. Like until the late 19th century, we didn't have a single government issued currency in America. Like across the Western states, you have all these goofy scripts that crashed and lost their value and ruined people constantly. So, I mean, that's maybe an obvious example too, but like the whole legal system without like courts and a system of enforced laws, like there is no contract. There is no like big economic activity because that means, you know, spending your money to buy a bunch of assets that you then turn into a business that makes a product or a service without laws. Like maybe you pay someone for a resource and they just don't give it to you because I don't, you know, make me, there's no police for you to use to make me honor our contracts and our commercial agreements, you know? So it's true, like without the state on foundational levels, there's no markets and no capitalism. But then it's incredible because at the end, as you said, when bringing up these uh, figures too, like it becomes about innovation. Like innovation is just this magical, delicate thing. Like don't look at it. You have to whisper because it's so, so fragile. And where does it come from? From these magic snowflake geniuses who come from nowhere. He said they came from nowhere. You're going to spook the innovation. It's going to run away. Yeah. You know, out of here. Let's look at like like you found a deer in a driveway and you're just experiencing that moment. Like that's what it is. But of course, like the real thing is, P.S. It was the government that invented all these technologies. You know, I wrote about this in Current Affairs and Bit Tyrants. We have a really good affairs video uh, that folks can watch on the YouTube channel. There we have uh, where we look at like, well, it's you know, Google came from a publicly funded research lab, and the internet was originally the militaries and the universities, you know, inter networking experimental project that went on for decades when they couldn't get. AT&T and IBM to take over the system, you know, and that became the internet. And that's where we get our mobile phone technology and the internet that Jeff Bezos exploited in his own words, exploited to build up his gigantic empire. Like it's because of those state investments. And he says, you know, we can't expect the government to pick the winners and know what the good research is, except the last time we did it when it created the whole internet for us and all of modern mobile technology. So other than that most recent time, it can never do it. And then at the end, he said, you're being very glib when you say we can do that. Like, that's the glibest thing I ever heard. Like, this is what it is to debate the right. It's just just nonstop Orwellian, nightmarish, perfect inversion of every historical reality. It's, uh, you know, you have to you have to brace yourself before you go in there. Yeah, I mean, look at all of the uh, the, I mean, the technological innovation that uh, that took place in the 1940s, which is the uh, closest the United States ever had to uh, being enti- an entirely planned uh, economy. Uh, you know, I mean, like like when we got, yeah, you know, uh, microwaves and you know and uh, and uh, you know TVs and you know the atom bomb and you know et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, and, but it and- can never work again. Yeah, okay, it worked those times, but never again. Those are the only times, all of the times, but no more, I, yeah, I bet. You're yeah, being very glib with all your examples, Ben. This list of real cases is very glib, I feel. Yeah, glib. it's really a 20th century thing. You know, we're in the 21st century now. Things don't things don't work the same way anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except, except, of course, for the uh, – for- uh, like the fact uh, that the only reason that I was able to attend it um, – 
uh, you know, maybe Gene would have anyway. I think he feels differently about this subject. But the only reason I was able to attend it uh, is that uh, is that I, uh, I I got a a shot of uh, of a vaccine uh, developed in an unprecedented speed with uh, uh, with research largely largely provided by the government, although granted also profits uh, private that were privatized to Pfizer. Yeah, that's uh, it, I mean, there's so many cases of this. Like, it's easier to look at the cases where the state didn't play a huge role in innovation since we're looking at this. And I, you know, the example I always give is like there are, there, there are 20th century examples of big tech that came out of the private sector. Like the main one is the transistor, like the basic switching component that still lies behind all of modern computing and mobile phones and everything. But I mean, that was I was like that example, though, because that's the big private sector innovation success of the whole 20th century. And it's from Bell Labs. AT&T's research arm when it had a nationwide monopoly <laughs> and it got through the market and then got legally sanctioned. Like that's the example. Even the one example that's from the private sector is from a full on hundred percent monopoly. It's just a gag. Like you bring these things up and he tells us we're being glib. It's intellectually unserious. Yeah, And this is just the low standard of the social sciences. You can go on saying this stuff and you could have a very respectable think tank position like as he holds and just say the wrongest things in the universe for your whole long dark money funded career. Yeah. I'd, al I'd also point out that the, uh, you know, yeah. that the, the vision of socialism, you know, provided on my end of it, um, which of course I don't think is like, I'm not suggesting is the final form of social organization or the end of history or anything, but like the kind of socialism that I think we could, we could, you know, we could have right now, uh, you know, that that's uh, that's realistic to imagine happening, you know, or whatever. Like, given having like a revolution, you know, it's realistic to happen, have you know, happen right now. Uh, you know, is uh, is one where you'd you'd still have a lot of the uh, kinds of economic elements that uh, that exist now, uh, except uh, that the. Uh, that uh, that that you know non-state firms would you know would have to be worker owned uh, and uh, and that uh, that finance uh, would be uh, would be socialized uh, and the big objection I the two big objections I heard to social to like um, I mean the worker ownership I guess he said he had no objection if it came about the right way but clearly people don't really want it that much anyway so you know never mind uh, but uh, this is what they always say I mean. You know, in, in, in debates, whenever anyone brings up co-ops with a libertarian, they're like, well, you could have a co-op right now. Why don't you just keep capitalism the way it is and then, you know, have have social ownership that way. And then, you know, the fact that um, like like the fact that it's so hard to actually build up a worker owned co-op doesn't seem to cross their mind at any point. Yeah, um, well, well, the, the equation is it's legal to do it. Therefore, there are mm -hmm. no, there are no structural uh -huh. impediments uh, you know, to it. Uh, which, which, yeah, which, which seems pretty, uh, you know, pretty goofy to me. Uh, but, um, you know, and, and again, I mean, we can have, you know, you can say, you can talk about what people could in principle do. Uh, but then the real question in my mind, what I kept trying to shift it to is okay. But given that this is the most, what all these historical examples seem to show is the most effective way of bringing about social change. And I will say, by the way, self-criticism that since, uh, since I was, I wanted to try to keep it relatively simple for the purposes of arguing with Gene. Uh, you know, I, I was very heavily focused on the sort of electoral prong of that. You know, and not, uh, you know, organizing at the point of production of the workplace, which in other contexts I would have emphasized more than I did here. Uh, but, um, but the, like, okay, um, this is what seems to be effective. 
uh, as a way of mobilizing majorities to, you know, to, uh, to get, you know, to get what they want and to change our social institutions. Uh, the real question, it seems to me, is whether there's some reason why we should have a principled objection to doing that, right? Like the real, the real issue to my mind is this, uh, is, is the the freedom issue, the issue of whether it's like just like redistribution of of well of resources is bad in itself, you know, which which which, which I think is his real objection. But uh, like the the two the two objections I heard to, um, although that's also something he never spelled out, right? Like what the you know he he referred to freedom many times, but he never spelled out what he meant by freedom or how his idea of freedom would evade all of the criticisms like the Matt Brunig derived sort of criticisms that I was making uh, in, uh, in, in my opening statement. And then again uh, in the, uh, in the closing, but the two, uh, the two objections I heard to socialized finance were one, uh, this idea that uh, for some reason um, grant officers at publicly owned banks uh, would be wildly more bigoted uh, and uh, you know, and, and, and really like put this, you know, like, and would not uh, and would not approve grants uh, to promising projects from you know ethnic or religious or political minorities. Uh, you know, I, I don't know why he thinks that, but I mean that is something he said. And the other one is uh, you know is what you talked about, uh, what you were just talking about, Rob, which is this idea that uh, that they're not that like grant officers at state-owned banks are for some reason going to be much worse. Than loan officers at regular private banks at identifying like promising proposals, and I just don't know why he thinks that. Yeah, in, in considering how much you know Epstein, his whole school was in favor uh, in the eighties and nineties of how great it's going to be when we unleash our private sector banks and deregulate them and take any limits off their borrowing and their trading and their merging. It's going to be great, and then we get a gigantic crisis that wasn't exceeded until the coronavirus. But Mays, he wants to bring up the institution of banks at all. If I were him, I would just try to never yeah. refer to what those institutions are. Like that might be a better play there, but it's incredible. I mean, you know, we have, it's, these guys talk like we don't have capitalism. Like we have private ownership of production. Our banks are private and they're the ones that invented redlining. Like the whole idea there is like, well, this is, you know, this is not a restricted neighborhood here. So let's be extra careful about lending to these people. Like that's a private market phenomenon. We're trying to make money here. And this is a depressed community because we have race class correlation in the United States because of our twisted history with what we did to everybody uh, who didn't come over here white, you know, uh, and then some. So it's fantastic to me that these guys will bring up, well, yeah, you know, you don't want the government to squish innovation. They can't do that. You don't want government banks to be in charge of lending. They'll be bigoted. Like just listing the things that their side is guilty of and saying it would happen if we had any social democracy. Like, aren't you embarrassed? Like, don't you feel embarrassed just like saying this shit when it's just nakedly in naked opposition to the actual record of just like the last 30 years even? You don't have to know. It's not the Gilded Age. You know, it's not that far ago. It's kind of stunning to me. I don't know. I feel like every debate I watch, I, I my estimation of uh, people we debate against goes down slightly, uh, at least. Yeah, uh, I'd, I'd also yeah, right. I mean, I I, I think the the bank thing is, uh, yeah, the bank thing is 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 very weird. That like there's there's this sort of, um, I mean, that the idea is it's almost like sort of in principle, uh, you you can't uh, the private sector is just going to do a better job of of innovation, of identifying, you know, potentially promising, you know, projects, uh, you know, but 
I don't know why that is. I mean, like, I mean, I, I, I think that because he was kind of playing to a very heavily libertarian audience, he was just kind of like mocking the idea that that wasn't true without really explaining what, what like reasons there are to think that it is true. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, that I, I think your, your point is very well taken there that there is, there is a long history of, uh, of, of counterexamples. And, and there are like, I, I mean, I did very briefly point out it and dwell on it. Uh, there are state development banks in the real world that like have like have existed and, and have been fairly effective. I think they've got one in North Dakota, uh, you know, like, like that's, this isn't, this isn't some uh, like, this isn't some like crazy reach into the unknown, you know, that there are like, like publicly owned banking has existed and, and, and has, has, has actually been effective uh, for, uh, you know, for, for, you know, bringing in a fostering economic uh, development uh, but, uh, but then also, yeah, this like, like, I mean, forget, forget that. Right. I mean, forget like publicly owned banks that are just giving grants to start businesses. Uh, like, like just, just look at what, uh, just look at what direct state economic planning, uh, has, uh, has, has done. I mean, the, the fact like every, uh, you know, like every part of this damn thing, Right, you know, comes out of something that the public sector just directly developed in-house. And then the huge firms that run all those supply chains use their own central planning for their own sector of their economies uh, to produce. It's true. You know, we all know the left kind of recognizes now how much planning happens within the private sector, which I think is great. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, kind of stunning. Uh, it's it's pretty amazing. I got to say, too, though, uh, uh like, like th- what that reminds me of is how frequently, like this guy, you know, they, they, these guys often do this. Like they'll put like whole paragraphs worth of words in your mouth, like again and again and again, just repeat it. You know, even even if you like outwardly refute it, you know, so you kept saying like, well, you think workers are miserable. It must be super easy to organize people because they're so mad. They're just consumed with constant fury at the state of their subjugation. And at the end, you were like, well, you know, like most people, we agree that like many countries are outright tyrannies and those people aren't constantly rebelling. It's a testament to people's ability to endure and their fear of violence and consequences. Like that doesn't prove that they don't hate it. You know, lots of efficient dictatorships exist. That doesn't mean people are actually excited. You you know that that's propaganda, right, Gene? People in propaganda in dictatorships aren't happy. It's the absence of like roiling general strikes doesn't mean that like there is no dissatisfaction. And as and we he pulled out that like, one poll, he pulled out also rich. He pulled out that one poll. Uh, just to your point, he pulled out that one poll that said, "Oh, like you know, sixty-five percent of workers, according to this one poll, are happy with their jobs. Therefore, you know, everybody must be happy. Nobody's miserable. Look, it's in a poll, like." Yeah, compared to what? Like, 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 like that, that's yeah. such an unclear. Like, okay, are you satisfied with your job? Or satisfied? Not? Are you, you know, satisfied with your product? Exactly. Yeah. You know, I mean, what? I mean, <laughs> I, I would think that how any normal human being is going to understand, uh, are you happy with your job? Is do I think this is better than you know than other jobs that like uh, that I would otherwise have, or that like you know I'd be worried that I might have if I lose this one. Uh, like, 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 like you said, compared to what? Yeah, like compared to oh, that socialist option. I know I have. Like that's it's yeah. a market economy. Like you yeah, said, no, compared to what? Nobody understands. Are you happy with your job? To to mean, uh, are you happier with your job than you would be in some sort of radical socialist vision that I've never even heard of, or even uh, with worker ownership? Like you know what I mean? Like the, the nobody thinks. Oh, are you happy with your job here, or would you rather own the business? Like. You know what I mean? Like yeah. nobody's thinking about like the power, like, like, are you happy with your job or do you want the power dynamic to totally switch right now? 
Yeah, <laughs> I don't think people know that's on the table necessarily in that uh, quiz question. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That's oh, well put. No, of, of course not. Nobody, nobody thinks. Are you happy with your job? Means like, do you prefer your job as it exists now, or would you prefer it if your workplace were organized as a cooperative? Uh, that would be a bizarre way for most people to uh, to understand the question. I'd also point out that lots of people in lots of in lots of oppressive circumstances don't um, like just because circumstances are bad and objectionable and oppressive. That doesn't necessarily mean that people are roiling with outrage about them. Uh, I think uh, very often, probably in most oppressive systems that have existed throughout history, most people, most of the time, just sort of glumly accept it as a fact of life. That that's that's just how things are. Yeah, it's uh, mass it's mass apathy, which is something that you know the libertarian uh, think tanks and stuff have have massively tried to make people feel like there's no better alternative. Like that's kind of been their project. Their project is never capitalism is the greatest thing on earth. It's capitalism is the best that we can get. Um, you know, this form of capitalism, like, so I, I think it's interesting that then they're like, well, you know, people are happy with, with, with like the, the situation they're in, but you've spent the last, like, what, 40 years pushing the idea that there is no alternative. Yeah, no, exa exactly. And also, um, and also I, I just like, look, I mean, do you think like most peasants in medieval Europe didn't wake up every morning thinking, God damn it. I, uh, I hate feudalism <laughs> so much. Uh, when are we, when am I going to get a chance to rebel? I mean, sometimes, right? There were peasant rebellions, but like, uh, but most of the time, I think most people just accepted it as the way that life was. What are you going to do? Uh, that like this, this is, this is how reality is. There are lords, there are serfs. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a damn shame. I was born as a serf, but it's like complaining about the weather. Uh, and, and I think that the same as this, you know, most people in, uh, like, Again, you know, go back to the gender example that, you know, most people like, like throughout, like, you know, most of the history of marriage, uh, you know, when, when there were all sorts of legal rights that married women didn't have, where up until like about five seconds ago in the larger historical time frame, domestic violence was basically legal. Uh, they, uh, that's, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think, uh, <laughs> yeah, um, you know, <laughs> I don't think that most people, uh, if we put this out as a podcast, that's going to sound like a really funny place for me to start laughing. I was, I was laughing at the, uh, at the chat that was on the screen, but like, I don't think that like most women in like 1850, right, spent you know were were in a nonstop state of like white hot rage over how unequal and oppressive uh, marriage laws were. You know, I mean, I, because most people in that society just accepted, well, what are you going to do? It's, uh, uh, you know, like like they might be very frustrated by a lot of the manifestations of it in their lives, just like a lot of people are very frustrated by dealing with their bosses, by financial insecurity and anxiety, et cetera, right now. But that doesn't mean that most people under most circumstances are outraged by the sort of basics of the uh, of, of the system, you know, by like by the fact that they are workers, for example. Uh, because people are only like pe typically people are only outraged about something uh, when they actually believe that there's something that they can do about it and that, you know, and that something better is possible. And that's kind of what radical politics is for to try to convince them of that. Also, when it bubbles up so much that like something happens as a catalyst and people feel like, all right, this is no longer tenable. But in like the grinding monotony of, of a system going on every day, like people don't necessarily think, oh, I'm really angry with my situation, like without, you know, thinking that there's something better until something really happens that acts as a catalyst for people to go, all right, this is untenable for me now. 
And yeah. I don't think I think I think the big thing about neoliberal capitalism is that as, as in as many situations as they can, they've tried to saw off the edges of what is untenable to, to create like a like a stable system in, in their minds. Yeah. And, um, and also like these people like this, like libertarians like do like do libertarians believe that most taxpayers uh, feel outrage and fury about the fact that taxation exists? Uh, presumably not. That'd be a pretty dumb thing for them to think, you know, like it's, it's clearly not true, uh, but they still think that it's, you know, from their perspective, bad and oppressive, you know, that, uh, that it exists. So just, just equating the two saying that like, you can only say that something's really bad if you also think that there, uh, that there's like just tremendous roiling outrage about it. Uh, just, just seems like a weird sloppy, uh, equation, uh, and and yeah, then of course the thing that the thing that I found like most annoying about it was uh, was all of this like you know courage of your conviction stuff, which is you know I was gonna, yeah it's, yeah cause, yeah I love what you were saying there yeah like this this is most people who are in terrible circumstances aren't just grinding their teeth continuously. I mean broadly speaking, like this is half of what ideology is for is to get right. people to accept that they're in a permanently subordinate position in terrible, needlessly bad sometimes conditions at the bottom of some twisted social hierarchy through history. Like this is half of what it, it, things like Christianity and Buddhism are for is to make people like a uh, kind of obey this thing to say nothing of all exactly. of our modern ideas. No, exactly. I was going to say, it's almost like a religious, it's almost like a religious uh, underbearing to like the way libertarians speak about capitalism. Like, like the, the social hierarchy needs to, or the economic hierarchy and the social hierarchy both need to be there. And it's like, it's almost like a religious, like, well, this is the way it is because this is the best things can really get for you. Like, um, yeah. and it yeah, is like to totally yeah. right. Which, 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 by the way, I've always thought like, it's kind of funny that like some people who sort of, uh, uh, have, um, you know, are very critical of, uh, of Christianity for reasons I'm sympathetic with, uh, don't say that about Buddhism, but like, it's, it's, it seems like that's at least as, uh, at least as true there. It's like, there's, a, I know there's like a Zen parable about somebody who, uh, you know, he, you know, is carrying water to the, you know, like his, his job is he carries water from the river and, you know, say, or no, is it, what did you do before you reached enlightenment? You know, Bodhisattva, you know, said, oh, I carried water from the river. Uh, what did you do after you reached enlightenment? Oh, I carried water from the river, you know, because the point is it's, it's not about that. It's about what's going on, you know, in your soul. Uh, and well, you uh, just never meditated the right way. That's what it, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. You know, you would understand all of this stuff if, if you just meditated the right way. Yeah, that's if a, you had meditated smarter, not harder, you Yeah, if you're not sure what that's a callback to, Rob, that was our uh, Sam Harris is wrong about everything episode. Uh, Sam Harris <laughs> did this thing where he said that a lot of his insights are because he meditates so much. Uh, and, no, because uh, he meditates the correct way. He knows how to, like he said, 99% of his audience don't actually understand how to meditate right. And because wow. of that, he, he must knows. be really smart. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's so, which is the kind of thing it's like, yeah, that seems like it's all about getting people to accept their, uh, their circumstances. Uh, and, and that's, you know, and that seems pretty, uh, you know, pretty bad to me. And, and by the way, I mean, obviously like I'm, you know, I'm an atheist, so I'm pretty happy to just say that about these religions, you know, to court, but like, I, I, but I, but like, there's also like, I think even somebody who was like a Christian socialist, like Cordell West would like, would, would sign on to a version of this critique. I think he would say that that's like the sort of, he'd make a distinction between like priestly and prophetic, you know, versions of, you know, Christianity. But, uh, but whatever is, uh, whatever you think about that, like clearly uh, the historically dominant 
uh, versions of these 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 religions and you know belief systems have been about trying to get people to uh, to to just sort of passively uh, accept their uh, accept their circumstances. I mean, clearly, what the medieval church taught was that you know was was that you shouldn't be you know too concerned with you know your misery as a uh, as 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 a peasant. You know, you should be thinking about your eternal soul. Well, whether it's capitalism or religion, I mean, the I mean, like forms of religion, like the ruling class just wants stability. You know what I mean? Like, like, like their 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 ability to rule is uh, predicated on stability. So it makes sense, kind of, that that these things are all, um, you know, it makes sense that that a lot of the stuff is predicated on grinding people down and getting them to just accept their situation for that reason. Oh. Totally. And I think that really plays into something that, yeah, Ben, you kind of mentioned a minute ago and that he kept doing more and more as this debate continued, which is getting like a little personal with it and saying like, well, you don't have the courage of your convictions because why aren't you going out and making it happen? Why are you just writing for a incredibly popular, fast growing socialist periodical when you could be making it happen? Because that's not what you're doing, apparently, by getting people to think about these ideas for the first time in most cases. Like it's in incredible. So this guy's saying if it's so, so popular, I think you know it's an unpopular car or a used car, just for being lazy, I guess. In your ivory tower. Yes, in your ivory tower, but you know no one really wants it because why isn't it super popular? Why don't people believe in it already? Like, again, we have private markets. We have capitalism. Media are private property, sir. Like, that's the issue. Like, he said, like, why don't you take it to – he even said at one point, why don't you take it to the public, Ben? Why don't you go in some billionaire's newspaper or a different billionaire's news network? And why don't you go there and talk about how that billionaire should have his property taken away and how he should be taxed and the workers that he likes to fire in his free time should be making the decisions. I'm sure he'll just jump at the chance to give you a giant platform. And he even mentioned with Zuckerberg, he said, you know, Obama can lock you up because everyone recognizes the power of the state, but Zuckerberg can just deplatform you. Oh, is that fucking all? Oh, I didn't realize he could make me invisible in a social debate. Wow, that's that's nothing. I can just laugh at that. You guys poop your pants whenever some libertarian gets temporarily suspended on Twitter for saying that trans kids should be thrown out of school or something. I don't understand why this this platforming thing is just nothing next to all this power, but just insisting again and again. You guys know that no one wants socialism. You guys know that workers don't want Marxism because you know it's, it's not popular now. And what possible explanation could there ever possibly be except that people don't want it? It's not like we own the news networks and always decide the narrow spectrum of ideas you'll ever be exposed to. And that's the whole manufacturing consent model that goes back to Chomsky again to uh, bring up that uh, hash-related gentleman, uh, at least indirectly, one more time. And so this is something that's just become a catchphrase of mine that I was just yelling at my computer monitor while I was watching this. You guys might have noticed me yelling a lot on my little thumbnail there, saying you have to hear an idea before you can like it. You yeah. have to hear it first, and then maybe you can make an opinion on it. Like, why don't people like your idea of worker control of the means of production? Yeah, I don't know. We have so many media shows supporting it. It's weird people don't like it. Like, we don't own media that are private corporate property or belong to billionaires. So people don't hear our fucking arguments, so they don't know what they are and don't support them. Except they don't need they to hear it. They do even already, but they don't that's need to the hear ugly it thing. Like, it's just embarrassing. There's just a poll, you know, like I, we asked, we asked everybody and, you know, 66% of people said they don't need to hear it. And I have a poll right here that says that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Case closed. Yeah. Well, no, and it's, and it's, and it's funny because like from hearing this stuff about like, okay, what does courage of your convictions mean? Right. You know, like, like it's, it seems like it's not like the way he's talking about it almost makes it sound like he thinks the plan is to impose socialism through a military coup or something. Uh, and, you know, 
I mean, what, like what I'm advocating, right? We're all advocating is uh, is winning majority support uh, in 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 order to do things like you know, like uh, like like win elections and uh, and 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 you know, I would also say you know, take direct action to the workplace and you know, other things like this. But like all of those things uh, rely on 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 winning. On, on winning the support of, uh, of of a majority, which is of course the point of doing things like, as you say, writing for Jacobin or Current Affairs, or uh, or you know, uh, dry, you know, having a podcast, or uh, driving down to Florida to do this debate, or you know, any of those things are are. are Why are you driving across America, spreading this message, Ben? Like he really got you with that one. Why aren't you doing that? Why didn't you appear to debate him? That was embarrassing when you weren't there. I haven't yeah. seen you on any. I haven't seen you on any rooftop shouting about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, oh, uh, God. W- w- whenever you know, whenever people can start doing uh, live shows for podcasts again, we'll do one on a rooftop. But, um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, it, it's uh, like like what he's really saying is well, um, what he means by you should just go for it is you should just go for it, but only in the ways that I approve of because they're consistent with libertarian ideology, uh, which are doing things like consumer boycotts. Which notice, I never said at any point that I was against doing that, right? I think consumer boycotts, I, again, I don't think that the historical rec- track record shows that they're the most effective method, but I have nothing against using them as a tool, you know, in, in some circumstances. But um, I'm, I'm certainly not against trying to, to build up, at, you know, really existing uh, worker co-ops because I think it's very useful to have models. Uh, I mean, I think he was making a weird equation between uh, – Oh, if if workers you know, in the Basque region can build up Mondragon, you know, without state help, uh, then why can't you have the entire economy that is currently ninety nine percent, you know, uh, much way north of ninety nine percent, you know, in private capitalist hands, you know, uh, worker owned without state help? Which of course, you know, the one is very different from the other, right? That you can build up individual companies and that you can transform the entire economic terrain. Um, but you know, but I think it is good to you know, I think it is good to build up those individual companies, have like real models that you can point to. That's like, oh look, here's this thing that's that's work around and, and it works very well. Um, Which, by know, the way, there's there's an interesting point in this that he said um, he he's perfectly fine with you. He's perfectly fine with like socialists building their worker ownership models under the guise of like a capitalist democracy. But when you say, all right, well, let's put it up for a vote. And let's um let's have people vote on whether or not they support you know like some kind of uh, social control or public control of these companies. He's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! People don't even know what they're voting for. Like you know, like it, it's like this weird like like you know when you, when you adv- when he advocates, you can do what you want to do under his system. But then when you say, all right, well, here's the way that I want to do what I want to do under your system. He's like, whoa, you know, people don't even know what they're voting for, and you're and this is the tyranny of the majority, and you know, this system doesn't even work. So it's like, does this system not even work? Is it the tyranny of the majority? Or, you know, is it you know, are, are am I free to to put this up for a vote and have people decide what they want their economic fate to be? Yeah, and, and I would point out, by the way, that that argument, people don't really know what they're uh, they're voting for. Um, this is this is a classic uh libertarian uh argument. Uh, goes back well, probably before. The, uh, uh, but the older version that I'm familiar with is Milton and Rose Friedman's book "Free to Choose," uh, which uh, which which I often think of as kind of the Necronomicon of right wing economics. 
but uh, in there, they they make this argument that oh well, you know, when you're voting for for politicians, you know, then you know that's a uh, you're really um, you know you're you're really voting you know you're not getting exactly what you want you know you have to make you know choices between you know different overall packages of positions and who knows what they might do and this and that uh, and uh, I have a um, I have an article for in uh, in Jacobin in fact one of the ones that he was uh, he was quoting uh, a, you know a couple times in uh, in the in the debate um, I will say at the risk of being cranky that I that I wish he'd spent a little bit more time quoting things I'd said in that debate and not sentences from old articles. But, um, you know, the, uh, the article, the article uh, from Jacobin is called voting with your dollars is an anti-democratic illusion. And one of the things I point out there is that it's actually much more true in consumer contexts, right? If you take seriously that libertarian analogy of voting as being like, uh, as buying things in the grocery store as being like voting, which of course, if it is, some of us have a whole lot more votes than others, but put that aside, uh, that it's actually much more true in buying things, you know, consumer goods, that you're voting for a massive complicated package where the things that you might be trying to, that might be the subject of, of your, you know, ethical consumer choice or whatever, are probably buried under a lot of layers that, you know, that are going to be more immediately, um, you know, relevant to you, right? Like that, like if, if you're, if you're deciding between two different kinds of breakfast cereal, you're not just, you know, voting on uh, whether you like the one, you know, whether you should have the, um, you know, the cereal that was manufactured by, you know, like, I don't know, Mondragano's or whatever, the worker co-op manufactured breakfast cereal, or whether you'd prefer one that was made by a traditional capitalist firm, you're also voting on which one tastes better, uh, you know, which one your kids like better and whether they'll get mad at you if, you know, if you buy the wrong one, uh, you know, which, uh, which one is cheaper, uh, which, you know, which again goes back to the wage level issue among other things. Uh, so there are tons of different things that you're voting on uh, in, uh, in, in that circumstance, which is one of the reasons that I actually think in the in literal voting, uh, you know, that those sorts of public policy, at the very least, I mean, uh, you know, you might be voting on a package, but at least the package are all things about what you want the policies to be. Uh, and, and of course, if you're voting a referendum, then you're, you know, you're literally voting on just one thing in a way that you never are uh, in the, uh, in the marketplace. So, uh, so yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's amazing that he'll say like, oh, but you have to, yeah, you have to vote for a whole candidate with a ballot. And so, you know, who knows what policies you'll have. So, you know, you never know if you're really going to get what you want and what other things you're getting. Have you ever had a friggin' operating system? Like you get, choose an Android or an Apple phone. It just, it makes so many decisions for you about what apps you will have access to and what technology it's going to fucking work with. Like that's it's just dumbfounding. Like these guys, the way to recognize an intellectual opportunist is someone who has wildly different standards depending on what they're talking about. And, you know, if he was talking to people resisting the Soviet Union, if he was talking to Poles in the Solidarity Movement in the 80s, he wouldn't say, well, if the communism sucks so bad, why isn't there already a movement overthrowing it? You guys should take it to the people. He'd recognize, oh, there's a suffocating ideology and a very limited amount of electoral uh, opportunities that are controlled by the existing powers. He'll have critical thinking skills to see through the bullshit of that society. When it's looking at the private sector here, just the power centers just dematerialize completely. And suddenly he has just no critical thinking and the system's all fantastic. And the only reason why we're not succeeding is because no one likes our ideas and we know it, so we're cowards. 
like all of this because he just suddenly has no critical thinking skills. There's nothing bad to say about it. It's the state's fault, if anything, is is ill suited. So I have to say, I think you handled the, especially you know the, the length of that debate, but uh, better than maybe I would have. Because after all those, I can, they constantly bring it up, like yeah, you don't have the courage of your convictions. If I'm a coward, you're an embarrassment. You're embarrassing yourself by making all these representations that are the opposite of the record. Like if you ever heard of the Gilded Age, like that's before we had any significant unions and income tax, no Federal Reserve, like no uh, antitrust law for most of it to govern companies. And yeah, a lot of wealth is created and we got a super powerful capitalist ruling class and child labor and constant crashes in the marketplace because of our lack of any government guardrails on the financial system. It's a goddamn nightmare. Like that's data. But this guy says nothing to say about it. So if we're cowards because we haven't managed to get CNN to carry our socialist message yet, then you're an embarrassment, Dr. Epstein. Like that's yeah, I would yeah. I would have gotten testier than you did. I think you handled it better. Yeah, uh, I think um, I, I mean I think that what he really means by you're a coward because you're not going for it is that you're not like doing even though you're going for a political strategy for you know. Uh, for trying to mobilize the majority to bring about social change through political action, it's cowardly that you don't instead do this other strategy, you know, this other thing that would be less effective uh, because uh, all of these historical examples show it be less effective. Again, slavery wasn't abolished slay, you know, by, uh, by abolitionists building up networks of free labor, you know, cotton farms and, you know, boycotting, you know, cotton from plantations uh, that's, you know, like the, the civil rights movement did sometimes use boycotts, but mostly, uh, they, they did things like, um, you know, they, they did things like sit-ins, uh, and, and mass and, civil disobedience and strikes. Yeah. And, and lobbying for, uh, and lobbying for government action effectively. Uh, you mean the bloody metallic cyborg hand of the government? Yes, yes, yeah. The, the iron fist of the government is uh, is what is is what took all those whites only signs out of the uh, uh, out of uh, out of the restaurant windows, and you know, and and uh, and yay fist, right? Uh, but it was uh, a it was a pretty it was a really funny debate moment though, when uh, when he said that's the thing that MLK did, and you were like, that's not the main thing that MLK did, and he said that's one of the things that MLK did. <laughs> yeah. And, and it seems like, like, okay, really, like, all of this stuff is just kind of a diversion, because it's like, really, like, why don't you do this other thing that you think would be less effective, and I think would be effective, although I can't really argue the history. It's like, okay, like, that's a diversion. The real issue is, you think that doing political action instead of doing it, doing it his way uh, would be... Um, wrong because it would violate capitalist property rights and i'm like that's really what he's saying and so it's like all right well that's the debate i was kind of trying to have the whole time about whether there's any actual like reason to care that much about capitalist property rights uh and and it's and he never really um you know he never really said why why there was right i, I there was the like i mean I, again I, I trotted out the brunig argument about how appeals to non-aggression are, are circular uh, you know, talked about how if you're interested in freedom in practice, then that's actually a conception of freedom that that undermines, uh, you know, capitalist uh, employment contracts. Uh, and maybe there are good responses to those, but it seems like he didn't really want to have that uh, debate. It seems like he wanted to have a debate 
where it was just sort of taken for granted. It was left in the background and left unexamined that obviously capitalist property rights are sacrosanct. Indeed. Yeah. Again, like everything else involving power or yeah, like, you know, major social relations like that, it just dematerializes from the analysis and markets are a place where you can do any whimsical social movement. Like that was this whole big first thing was like, well, if you want worker controlled production, why don't you get 90% of America to get fucking second mortgages and then do a boycott to crush the firms and then buy them? Why don't you do my hilarious Willy Wonka scheme for socialism? I don't want to actually have an election over this. I think we all know who's going to lose. And like, again, and we mentioned this already too, like I always notice these conservative debaters, they don't believe in democracy. They hate republics. They only mention it at the end of the debate. They never come out and say, let me say that all of you dirty, unwashed commoners are too dumb to make decisions. Let me open with that. Like that never happens. It's always toward the very end of the debate. Every debate I've had with conservatives, they get around to trashing elections and you can't, they're not transparent. Who knows what you're going to get? Anyway, the Android operating system's great. They know to backload the really uglier stuff. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, all the stuff about the tyranny of the majority. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it just seems like, um, I mean, look, can majorities do things that are, that are bad or tyrannical? Sure. Uh, although historically, the tyranny of the minority has been a much bigger problem. Uh, and, and I would think that the, the objectionable bit would be the tyranny part, not the majority part. And, uh, and I, I don't know why, like, so really again, like the, the real argument is, is it bad and tyrannical to, um, you know, to, to violate, you know, capitalist property rights, the means of production, you know, uh, by, 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 you know, redistribution or expropriation. Uh, and, he, and he clearly thinks so, but he didn't really want to argue for that. Right. I mean, he just, just kind of wanted to, to uh, to start for that, you know, because because that's really, I mean, that's that's really the argument I always want to have with these guys. It's like, okay, let's 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 cut through the nonsense. Which do you think is more important? Whether the vast the population have a good life, uh, or whether uh, the um, the divine right of uh, of capitalists uh, to uh, to retain uh, every dollar and, uh, and, and every, uh, every business and, you know, and every bit of wealth and power and resources, uh, is, is left uninterfered with. And I know what my answer is, uh, but, uh, I think I'll leave people with that, uh, for, uh, for tonight. Uh, uh, Rob Larson, uh, is, uh, the, uh, house economist at, uh, current affairs magazine. You can, uh, uh, you can, you can read him there. Uh, you can, uh, you can also, uh, read a, uh, several books uh, that he wrote that you can see him uh, him putting out there. I see Capitalism Versus Freedom, The Toll Road to Serfdom. Uh, I see Bit Tyrants. What's the other one there, Rob? Oh, that's uh, Bleakonomics, my neglected youngest child. So, uh, or oldest child, whatever, my first child. Uh, so yeah, folks are interested in some of these issues, especially Capitalism Versus Freedom. Uh, you know, don't let idiots get away with these dumb arguments when talking to you. Check it out. All right. As good a point to leave off on as anything. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for watching guys. Uh, we are going to be back uh, with the, uh, the official, um, the official uh, season two uh, in, uh, in a week. Uh, we are, uh, we're going to um, uh, not quite sure about uh, the, uh, the lineup yet. Although I think the, um, uh, this uh, episode, season two, episode two is going to have uh, Tori Reed on, uh, which I'm very excited about. Big fan of his work. 
Uh, and uh, at some point in season two, we haven't actually figured out what we get. Uh, going to have uh, Sam Cedar uh, on to talk about the highlights of some of his many, many debates with libertarians. Uh, so uh, should uh, uh, should be fun. So again, season two officially starts uh, next uh, next Monday. We'll also uh, surely be doing something on uh, Saturday for the official release date uh, on May 1st of my new book, uh, Canceling Comedians uh, While the World Burns, A Critique of the Contemporary Left. Uh, and I will uh, see everybody then. Left is best. <laughs>